the OTB Podcast Network. Yeah, just gone 8 o'clock on this Thursday morning. You're watching or listening to OTB AM. Andy Dunn is the voice you've just been listening to. He was speaking on last night's show. Great interview with Joe Malloy. The full piece available now on the OTB Podcast Network, on the brand new OTB Sports app, uh, and on youtube.com forward slash off the ball as well. Plenty more rugby coming up later on as well. After 9 o'clock, we've got Keith Wood's State of the Union. Schools and domestic rugby, Ger, I think, is up for discussion. Yeah, so we've done international. We've been down uh, speaking with Michael Checa and Andrew Mertens, you've got to mention there. Um, and we also obviously had Philip Brown last week. We've done the commercial stuff. We've done the strength of the club game in England and how that's really one of the, the big dominoes that still has to fall in terms of what's going to happen next and the whole CBC relationship. So we figured we'd talk about the role that the AIL has and the role that the schools have. And Johnny Murphy has obviously just taken Newbridge College to the Leinster Schools Cup final obviously they're going to share that because the the game ended up being cancelled when lockdown happened and he talks in depth about just the resources that the schools have and they in in Newbridge they have um, fairly phenomenal resources when he he lists them off but uh, he said that they would kind of be considered a developmental school in in terms of not being at the same level of resources as some of the big powerhouse schools who traditionally would be winning the Leinster Schools Cup and would traditionally be providing the backbone of the Leinster team and subsequently the Ireland team, as we've seen in recent years. And so when he begins to go through that level of, of um, detail and it's for the junior team and the senior team, you realise that there's a, a massive industry in schools coaching. And then you, you just park that thought for a moment and you go, that's not something that Leinster or the IRFU actually have to pay for. It's, it's a really phenomenal farm system that is essentially paid for and partly by the state in that the, the teachers of all of the schools that are private are funded by the taxpayer. But it's the extracurricular activities then that the parents are paying for. And rugby essentially seems to be one of the biggest benefactors in Irish civil society from wealthy parents who are sending their kids to private schools. Um, and, and that's a very interesting dynamic to, to think about. Like uh, the, the club game, on the other hand, Leinster spend a good bit of time and effort and money and brain power in trying to get the club game up to a level where that will begin to provide a pathway for, for players. So we, we get a bit of the detail on that too. And it is really interesting to see exactly how well run um, rugby is and how it benefits from this ecosystem, which is fairly symbiotic. You know, the other thing that I think we should talk about briefly is that um, if you're an absolutely brilliant youths player, there's a very good chance that you'll come to the notice of one of the schools who are competing for the uh, Leinster Schools Cup. So, um, like, you know, not always, but a lot of those players who are playing representative and there's a, a series of representative areas that you play in, in the youth system if you're not in the school. And if you're really good in those, you're getting access to play against the school teams that they, they organise matches. Um, but then a lot of those end up in the school system anyway because they get picked off and they get offered scholarships or they get... Uh, you know, brought over for for um, leaving certain years. So it, it's a real, I didn't really know exactly how the whole thing worked. And it's great to have somebody who's on the inside of it just to explain exactly how it works. And then on the other side, um, Stephen Rooney is director of rugby at Lansdowne and is talking about the difficulties of the club game, the elite club game faces and what role there should be. While we were on the call yesterday, um, recording that piece, one of his players had actually just signed a deal with Connacht. So we don't talk right. specifically about the fact that it is a pathway into the professional game if it's used properly for that individual. But we do talk about that as a concept. And then what about the club game 
as a standalone thing. Is there hope for that? Is that is that the sense you're getting from these conversations? Because it's always getting a bit of a battering in this way. Like, of course, there have been stories and, and good news stories about people, as you say, getting picked up by provinces. But in terms of being its own sustainable thing that people are interested in, is, is there light at the end of that tunnel at all? I think that that's the point of the conversation. It's it, you have to decide what you want to do with it, and everybody has to row in behind that. So. They were talking about, you know, Johnny Murphy made the point, if you're in the school system and you're on your senior cup team, you're getting noticed as a rugby player. But then when you leave sixth year and go and join uh, a club team, no one pays any attention to it. So there's no sense of this being part of the pathway. If you don't get picked up by the academy, for example, you end up being lost, essentially. And there's not much to attract you to the clubs. Bear in mind that Schools players aren't allowed to play with their clubs. So that link is broken from the time that they're essentially 13 to the time that they're 18. And then you could be the 10th best player on St. Michael's, say, uh, or Black Rock or any of those big schools and not get a Leinster contract. And the, the rugby system hasn't quite worked out the best way to keep you involved. Um, and the club is the obvious answer, right? So putting a system in place that allows the clubs to use those players and still have them be part of the, the wider Leinster system. We're talking about the late bloomers here. We're talking mm. about players who might have been injured in fifth and sixth year who are, who are coming through. You would expect that at some point they might get a chance, but like uh, unless that kind of relationship is structure, structure, structurally formalized, mm. formalized structurally, um, then it seems like there's a, a missed opportunity. And there's also like a lack of certainty about what you actually want from these teams because they're, the other thing was um, the AIL is, is amateur. I didn't realize this either, that unless you're a contracted Leinster or Munster or Connacht player and sent back to play a couple of games to get over your ring rustiness or whatever, then you are supposed to not be being play, paid to play to play in the league. Um, so it's just interesting to kind of get a full understanding of exactly what the, the relationship between these different strands are. And it, it feels like they haven't quite worked out 25 years in professionalism what the specific role of the club is and how to support the club in providing a level of competition that is one step below um, the provincial academy or is one step above the provincial academy, one step below the um, whatever that BNI Cup used to be. Yeah, well, plenty of stuff to get into there after nine o'clock. Should be an interesting chat. All of Keith Wood's State of the Union going totally worth your time going back into the Rugby and Off the Ball podcast or onto YouTube to, to watch all of those back. And hopefully it's a time for rugby to actually analyse all this and make the required changes that might be needed. One of the other stories Jerry wanted to touch on this morning is about the white paper published by Statsports, the Irish company who've been pretty vital in terms of supplying data to the Premier League in terms of Project Restart. Essentially, they're taking data from GPSs worn by players in intercounty football and in club football and finding out basically how close they are to other players and for how long are they within a, a two-metre proximity of them. It's carried in the Irish Times this morning, good piece by Malachy Clerken in there. And just a, a couple of the pieces of information that come out from it, from Statsports. Gaelic, football, Gaelic footballers are spending an average of 2.5 seconds in the proximity of other players during matches, which is a remarkably non low number when I initially look at it, but it's especially low when you consider that soccer is at 3.3 seconds. There are higher incursion rates in training, which is obviously another sign of hope because it's easier to control. 
and the longest time spent between two players was 58 seconds from the range of matches that they looked at uh, from their data of games. And as Clerkin points out in his piece, that's probably from a particularly sticky slash mouthy corner back marking a corner forward. I would have thought it was longer than 58 seconds, the longest time spent between two players. I certainly expected the average to be way above 2.5 seconds. It's not the be-all and end-all of this, and stat sports will say that themselves, but it's quite hopeful to see these numbers. Yeah, I think um, the, if, if you trace this back, Statsports obviously provided this for the Premier League, and that was one of the pieces of information that the Premier League used to convince the players to go back. And if you think back to how all the conversations that the GA have been having have been, it's a contact sport. Uh, uh, contact has been one of the big things that um, Tony Hulan has been talking about since the very start of this. How can we go back into contact sport? And actually, it's not contact in the definition of the World Health Organization. There are very specific medical terms. And again, NFLV was pointing that out too. So I think this is just a bit of information where, it, you know, it, the science is fairly phenomenal that um, that sports have been able to, to dig into here. And the reams of data they have gone back over such a long period of time. Really clever guys, a really brilliant Irish company who have made it on the global stage. And uh, the fact that they're able to produce this, I think, is really helping with what's coming. So you, you can see... Shane Stapleton had a piece um, yesterday with, which had loads of great detail about and the, our game platform, um, which had loads of great stuff about the return to play. Mm. Um, and bits of other return to play stories have, have leaked out, but he reckons that there's a good chance we're going to see inter-county sooner rather than later, that it won't be the original November deadline and that we could see action uh, July-August time at club level. The only way that you're going to get to that point is if there's comfort given to players and administrators and the only way you're going to get comfort if, is if there's science and the science that that force have provided has given everybody an opportunity and cover to say well actually you know what maybe we could start doing the things that everybody else around the world are doing and if we're slow about it and cautious about it and they have been very slow and they have been very cautious um, and we might see games in uh, in the autumn time of high caliber and meaningful quality yeah definitely and I'm all for somebody taking the more cautious approach in these times, and that's exactly what the GEA did. And to go back to what John Horan said that night in the Sunday game, he said that there was a chance that we can move this back, but we can also move it forward. And it's looking increasingly likely from Stapleton's piece in our game that there is going to be a pushing forward of the inter-county calendar to the point where you could have inter-county action in September. We might actually go straight to uh, Shane uh, Hannan, who's with us this morning at 10 past 8 on OTB AM, because I think you're leading with this story, Shane. Yeah, absolutely. This uh, certainly the big story of the morning, uh, Owen and Jer. Uh, positive news for GA fans, for sure. But uh, the GA looks set to begin the county championships, as you've mentioned, in August and uh, been the Provincial and All-Ireland Club Series for 2020-21. Uh, as you said, Shane Stapleton has the story in our game this morning with Intercounty Championships looking like starting in September. Uh, so a little bit earlier than uh, any of us had really expected. Uh, the association looks set to ratify a return-to-play roadmap drawn up by their COVID-19 advisory group. So that's the big news emerging this morning. Uh, some soccer as well for you this morning. Premier League clubs will discuss today what would happen if the season is curtailed by the pandemic. They'll debate scenarios to finalise the league table if the campaign cannot be completed, but the potential for scrapping relegation is not expected to be on the agenda. Clubs could also vote on the possible use of neutral venues for some games. It's expected a fixture list for the opening few weeks of the restarted season will be finalised this afternoon. An individual from Tottenham Hotspur was the only positive test from the Premier League's latest round of coronavirus screening. 
It's not known if it is a player or indeed a member of staff, but they will likely miss the first round fix of fixtures as they go into quarantine for 14 days. Uh, the new Scottish Premiership season, meanwhile, is set to start in August. Matches are likely to be held behind closed doors, but every game will be on television. Meanwhile, the SPFL has written to clubs to ask what it would take for them to back a 14-man top flight. So it's all change. Uh, Bohemians says it was an error for two groups of three of their players and a coach to take part in a training session in the same place. Uh, pictures of the session at Father Collins Park in Donamede in Dublin emerged on social media yesterday. Bows insist social distancing was observed, but say they will ensure only one group of three players will now meet in a single venue until collective training resumes on the 8th of June. Uh, some golf team USA captain Steve Stricker has become the latest voice to speak out against the prospect of a behind-closed-doors Ryder Cup event this year. Patrick Harrington's European team are due to play Stricker's team at Whistling Straits in September. Though Rory McIlroy is among the players to call for postponement if fans aren't allowed to attend. Stricker says it would be a crime to play without fans at the Wisconsin course. He also added it would likely reduce the event to a yawn fest. Uh, Mercedes chief Toto Wolff says he hopes to finalise a new contract with Lewis Hamilton pretty soon. The current Formula One World Champions deal is set to run out at the end of the season. Wolf also admits that they're monitoring the situation of Sebastian Vettel, who is due to become a free agent in December. He, of course, leaving Ferrari. So that would be a fascinating switch if they were to pit Vettel up against Hamilton, two of the greatest drivers, of course, of this era. Uh, Newcastle United have been criticised by their fans for not communicating their plans for season tickets. The Supporters Trust has also asked the club for confirmation of refunds, as all the remaining home games will be played behind closed doors. Meanwhile, football journalist Mikel Delaney joined off the ball last night to discuss what is holding up the purchase of Newcastle by a Saudi Arabian-based consortium and why that delay may influence the Premier League's thinking on the matter. A really good stuff, as always, from Miguel. That full piece is up this morning on otbsports.com and indeed the new OTB Sports app, which is live for download in the Play Store and App Store right now. And finally, for me this morning, lads, uh, some basketball news. The NBA will meet with the National Basketball Players Association later to discuss proposals to resume the season with 22 teams next month. Uh, they hope to play eight games at the Disney campus near Orlando in July to decide the teams to progress to the postseason playoffs. The plans would see the playoffs commence in August with the finals in October. Shane Hannan, great stuff. Chat to you soon. Thanks, uh, lads. Shane Hannan there on the line this morning. Let's tell you what's coming up over the next little while on OTBAM. The sports page is coming your way in just a sec, we've got Gina Akpamoses and Joseph Ajawumi with us later on at around 25 to 9. Michael Fenley will also be with us at 10 to 9 to chat about how he's been spending lockdown so far and Keith Woods' State of the Union, as we've already mentioned, coming your way at 10 past 9. We've got domestic and schools rugby up for debate this morning. Johnny Murphy and Steve Rooney will be alongside Ger and Keith. Time for the sports pages. OTB AM. Starting with OTB Sports. Dot com leading the way th uh, this morning is Kelly Harrington and her quotes from last night. I have the feet up with chocolate and biscuits. Kelly Harrington is all of us. She uh, on the show last night she says, I'm going to Dunn's this evening. I'll probably buy a large Cadbury's fruit and nut bar, a large Maltesers bar, and a packet of biscuits. Once one of those bars gets opened, it's gone in the day. There is no stopping me until it's gone. A day like if I could uh, last a, a day with uh, that sort of menu, I'd be doing well. It's usually an hour or two for me personally, but. Uh, Good to see we're kind of on the, the same level at this point with elite athletes, sure. You are essentially an elite athlete is what I'm hearing here. Well, like, without question, the, the diet of champions is uh, what I'm at, uh, really, when I look at that. So elsewhere on OTB Sports this morning, we've got uh, human rights versus TV rights. What's holding up the Saudi takeover? As Shane mentioned already, that was from Miguel Delaney on the football show last night. It took me years to recognise he was bang on the money then. That's a quote from Andy Dunn. 
and uh, we've got uh, OTBAM and uh, Bohemians admit error with Father Collins Park training session and that Formula One story as well. So that's otbsports.com right now and the brand new OTB app is where you can get all your favourite OTB content in one place right now. The uh, Irish Independent this morning, Bose admit error after training video emerges. It's that same story. Um, I think Bose were doing what a lot of um, clubs are doing. It's just that they happen to be doing it simultaneously. Um, I think a lot of GA teams around the country have been training in threes and fours. Um, Ross, no return for FAI Olgaard is the headline on that story there. And uh, Springbok duo game changers for Munster, says Habana. Brian Habana has been talking about the uh, two lads who are going to fetch up in August and ultimately completely change Munster from um, one of the teams who were very close to being one of the best teams in Europe to essentially they should be now one of the best teams in Europe. The Irish Examiner this morning leads with Owen Cormican's piece that Kerry Club Games will be pay-per-view as €400,000 loss looms. So this is interesting. The live streaming of Kerry fixtures whenever the GEA sanctions a return to games activity will be pay-per-view. This is according to their county chairman, Tim Murphy. He says, irrespective of restrictions on crowd capacity, Kerry County Board will charge a small subscription fee to watch county championship games online. The reason for this is obvious. They're going to face a pretty big loss to the tune of €400,000, according to this piece, if the remainder of the season provides a write-off. This is interesting, isn't it, that club games would go behind a paywall immediately? Yeah, like, will there be an outcry about this or does everybody accept, actually, these are games that, you know, I won't be able to see otherwise and we're going to pay for them. Maybe this is exactly where the GA needs to go. Like, can you imagine paying nine ninety nine a month and being able to watch the Kerry Championship, the Dublin Championship, the Kildare Championship, the Donegal Championship? Would that make sense? And the money gets shared pool centrally? I think if you're parting with money to go into a club ground you realise that there is a commitment you're making to the game in that county or wherever it is. You are supporting grassroots GEA by paying into a club ground. This is possibly the same thing. It, it is the, the same idea. It is the same place where your money will be ending up. And so, I, I, to play devil's advocate, how is that any different from an inter-county match going behind a paywall? It's a good point. It's a good point. Like that is up to what the GEA do with that money. You're talking about Sky Sports. You're talking about the advent of pay-per-view GEA, and if that is going to be met with outcry, will this be met with the same backlash? Is that your point? Well, it, it clearly isn't going to be met with a backlash because everybody understands that the reason this is happening is one, you're not allowed to have fans at games, so putting them on TV is the best thing to do, and two, they need to be able to pay for that service. And three, they need to raise funds. So I, if there is a backlash, I'll be amazed. Sorry, I should expect there to be a backlash. I won't be surprised that some people will have an issue with this, but it makes perfect sense. I'm just wondering if, you, if you're ascribing a value to something, and this is an old argument at this point, which you know seems to have been um, trashed out as, as, and beaten like the dead horse that it is. But isn't there a point where you go, there's a value to this. We need to ascribe a value to that and then decide what that is and then fairly price it up so that people can access it. We charge to go to matches. No matter what the game is, we charge in the GEA to go to games. And there should be a charge to watch that game because there's a value to that as opposed to it being given away for free. And I think 
that 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 has been established now at intercounty level, and it it should be established. It, this should be an opportunity for the the county boards to produce really good quality. When you when you look at the quality of um, cameras that are available now, and the the quality of broadcast systems that are available now, you'll actually be able to really sit and watch and enjoy most of these games at a level that five years ago was completely off the charts and that in three or four years time when everything improves again it's going to be fairly close to the broadcast that we were watching 10 years ago from 24 cameras and a satellite truck mm. just two things here for, i'll pay 9.99 for that i think uh, a lot of people would agree with you but just just two points on that first of all this county board has form in actually realizing the the value of their club games i'm not sure if you remember last year they wouldn't allow i can't remember was it like one of the county semi-finals or one of the county finals to not be aired on tg Cahir because they wanted people to actually show up to the game and pay their money to actually go and see it so the the process of doing that is not too dissimilar but also the second point here is that the backlash will definitely be checked by the fact that this is a necessity that you've got the four hundred thousand euro hole here and you can easily make a case that this is not our ideology to put games behind a paywall online, but it has to be our ideology for us to stay afloat. Yeah, look, exactly on the second point. On the first point, I'm sure there was a bit of politicking going on there between who actually owns the rights to the uh, county matches because I know that they get sold centrally and yet the counties feel that they should be getting all the revenue from them. So they, they don't like the fact that those games are on TV because they, they believe, rightly or wrongly, that they're not seeing enough of the uh, funding coming from um, the central GA. Now, central GA would make the argument very well that all of the money they make essentially gets distributed back right around the country. So counties sometimes just suck it up for the greater good. But it turns out we're not very good at that in, uh, in Irish sport, Owen. No, uh, it doesn't seem that way. Just a couple of other things from the Irish Examiner. Uh, Kerry Secretary O'Regan adds voice as FAI regime faces battle. This is an FAI council member, John O'Regan, who's basically echoed the concerns of Nixon Morton by insisting only intervention by FIFA will, present, will prevent civil war erupting at committee level. So he's the veteran secretary of the Kerry District League who represents the Munster FA on council. He is one of almost 30 legislators on the brink of being forced out under the terms of the state's bailout deal. It's a good piece by John Fallon this morning. Some strong quotes from O'Regan. Football decisions should be taken by football people. The GEA wouldn't get away with being run by people without knowledge of the sport. That's why they are so strong in the community. And I'd fear for soccer if we went away from that. I am democratically elected annually to council, yet we have a minister who was voted out by his constituency in the last election, casting football people aside. I think that... The whole Shane Ross situation is irking a lot of people in the FAI at the moment, to say the least, especially people who've been around for quite some time. It'll be very interesting if there is a new sports minister over the next couple of months, whether or not there will be a rollback on the term limits or when the term limit rule needs to actually be implemented. Uh, the other two stories then leading the way on the Irish Examiner. Owen Merchant's been out doing the rounds, talking about his unbelievable goal last year. Uh, hard for Lane to count steps on final winning goal is the headline here in the Examiner. Tough for Conor Lane to have known if he took too many steps. And Nace confidence... What do you think of that, Owen? Uh, I think... What do you, you think know, of that, Owen? It is, it is tough for any uh, referee to, to count those steps. And why would you take such an unbelievable goal away from uh, a, a kid like that? What a, what a moment for him. And uh, Nace confidence it can lead successful racing return. Nace Racecourse, primed for the return of Irish racing on Monday afternoon. And Racecourse manager Eamon McAvoy is confident of a positive experience. So that's the examiner plenty happening there this morning.
yeah, I think, um, you know, if you remember anything back to when it was announced that racing was going to be coming back at the start of June, there was definitely some people going, oh, that's too soon. Now it's like, Jesus, that's exactly the right time to be coming back, right? There's a, a sense that, one, they've, they've got the experience of doing the 10 days at the end behind closed doors. They've ramped up their precautions, and it feels like we're absolutely ready to have some more return to normality and um, racing happening next week. Feels about right now. Yeah, I, I saw someone making this point over the last couple of days that no matter what stance you took on return to play, you were probably going to be wrong and I put that wrong, at one time or another. So people were pointing the finger at the Bundesliga before it came back, saying this is ridiculous, this is inhumane, there's no way that the Bundesliga or any competitive sport should be coming back, regardless of no fans behind closed doors. Fair play to Ligue 1 for you know, ending their season. And then all of a sudden, now here we are, Ligue 1 are trying to reverse their decision to have actually called off the season, and everybody's like, fair play to the Bundesliga, paving the way for everybody in Europe. So no matter what stance you took, at one point or another, you would have been wrong. And everybody is a broken clock, it turns out, eventually. As uh, Monty Burns would say, cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Uh, Breakfast proves a great start for East Belfast Club is the headline on the uh, Sports Thursday section of the Irish Times. This is a story about a new GAA club being set up in East Belfast uh, across the barricades. A love story that could only be um, involved in the administration of an amateur uh, sports organisation. New proximity study provides shot in the arm for return to action. I was already talking about that. That's Margie Clerken's story about um, the Statsports white paper that's helping to convince people that a return to GAA action is something that we can do this year. And uh, yeah, let's get on with it because it's going to be good. Uh, Merchant, wrong player in the right place at right time. Turned out he was the right player in the right place at the right time because obviously uh, that was that was the sliding doors moment. That was the moment of the game, Owen. That was the moment that your little Kerry Hart died, right? When we do we our classic... enough time in this goal. We haven't, we haven't spent enough time in this. Go on. I, I was in a different continent when it happens, thankfully. It was when we do our classic game club on this game in years to come, at the moment of the match, well, Owen Merchant, obviously. What, what else is there? Like, we're, do, we're doing Ireland-England 07 in rugby this week, and it's like Shane Horgan's try, obviously. What else is there? Like, Owen Merchant's moment is on that level and instantly memorable. You know it's going to be talked about for a long, long time. And because of the fact that he is a cornerback, you know for a fact that it will be his moment that we talk about for a long, long time. When, like, Bernard Brogan was... When he scored a goal in the 2013 final, you were like, well... It's hard to select between all the great Brogan moments. But for Merchant, this is his career moment defined already. Uh, it's so so young in his career, too. Not enough was made of the um, insult that was paid to Bernard Brogan and where he came in that um, top 20 footballers of Dublin. Like, where, where did he finish? I can't even remember, but it was nowhere near high enough. Bernard and Alan Brogan should have been way higher up. It was almost as if there was like, well, sure, look, what have, what have they done? What really have the, has this team done, you know, with all the advantages that they have versus the, the team of the um, 70s and early 80s? Like, come on now. I don't think there was an outfield Dublin player in the top five of the, the Leinster over the last uh, 50 years. Was it 50 years? Which is remarkable, really, but it also shows uh, the strength of Stephen Cluxton and how he's almost become the unanimous decision for the best dub of all time. Uh, the London Times is where I'm going to next. West Indies trio refused to tour England. Three West Indies players, they've refused to be part of the squad to tour England for the three test matches next month because of cor- concerns of coronavirus. Martin Ziegler then says a third of games on free-to-air. Amazon have now confirmed that it would make its four matches free-to-air. So that's 30 in total in the UK anyway. The Premier League matches will be free. And Adidas scraps £20 million Ozil deal 
Adidas has decided not to renew Mesut Ozil's sponsorship deal, worth about £20 million over the past seven years. The German company is instead looking to focus on the next generation of stars. So his boot deal with Adidas expires next month. His association with the company dates back to 2013. When he was at Real Madrid, he switched from Nike and uh, secured a fairly lucrative contract. But Adidas, done with Mesut Ozil. It's a lot of cash, isn't it? Over seven years, yeah, it, like, it obviously is. I, I thought it was 20 million per year when I saw it first, and I thought that was fairly jaw-dropping, but it is 20 million over seven years. Just wear a pair of boots, says you, it's, uh, it's fairly good money. So he'd, be, he'd been photographed wearing boots with the logo blacked out uh, recently, so it's obviously been in the pipeline for some time. Uh, so it had been suggested in Germany sense. that uh, his public image was a factor behind the decision as well, which is something you probably need to dig a little bit deeper into. Yeah. All right. Uh, the Mirror Sport this morning. Let's hear it for the noise. TV fans will decide whether they want crowd sounds or not when the Prem kicks off again. Uh, let's hear it for the Troy. Uh, Troy Deeney's return to training is a massive boost for struggling Watford. And they also have a bow way have we broken rules, except that um, they actually have broken the rules, obviously. Lockdown may help own goal is um, on Merchant, as we were talking about a little bit earlier on. Uh, also, there are stats, just what GA needed for a return is the um, white paper from Statsport saying that, come on, let's get it on, let's get it on. The Irish Sun this morning. Why are you taking our cash? Toon grab season ticket debits early. No crowd, but no black cats refund. Uh, that is the back of the sun. Deliver blue then, Chelsea's meals on wheels. Chelsea are feeding their players on the go in the bid to get them into shape for the start of the season or the restart of the season. There's Owen Merchant as well on his wonder goal. Prem are tackling problems, meanwhile, writes Martin Lipton. Prem club bosses will be under pressure to sort out the remaining project restart rows today. So it's D-Day number 1045, it feels, at this point. Every Thursday or every Friday, there's another significant meeting. Today is one of those. It's safety race for big guns then. English top flight teams are in a race against time to gain safety certificates they need to be able to resume the season. The delay in finalising the fixtures for the project restart means all 20 teams are yet to apply for new licences to stage matches. So a couple of wrinkles to be ironed out from the Premier League's perspective. That is the Irish Sun. i got the star for you next, and that is a five-in-a-row goal hasn't changed me. Dublin's own merchant, uh, Minister and FAI at Loggerheads. We've already covered that story. That's uh, Shane Ross versus the FAI Old Guard. Uh, Tottenham positive is the only negative is a story of a picture of Jose Mourinho, that player who they're saying isn't that important. There's an interesting detail to allow to leak out. So uh, there you are going about your business, training, thinking maybe I'm going to get a chance in the team. All of a sudden you get coronavirus. You're like, oh, this is pretty bad. And then the news leaks out that actually you're not that important. Like who, who said I wasn't that important? It can't be anybody else. They're literally talking about one player. So whoever's briefing on behalf of Spurs that this player isn't particularly important. That player needs to uh, get on to his agent very, fairly quickly. And the back page of the star this morning is Naughty Bows. Uh, Gypsy said to avoid rap despite breaching FAI guidelines on training sessions. So there won't be any repercussions for Bows for their training session. If you were a team threatened with relegation, you would say this player who is tested positive is our most important player, wouldn't you? You'd be like, this is a scandal yeah. that we're coming back to play. It's our, it's our, it's a very valuable player, unnamed guy number one who has contracted the virus. We have a cluster of five players who have got it, and it's like our top scorer, our chief assists, our captain, our centre back, our centre midfielder. Away you go. It, it would be an e like an epic version of Sunderland till I die. The inside story of the club that actually pushes that narrative 
on the, the external anyway. Uh, back page of the Guardian is Tottenham player test corona, positive for coronavirus, as you mentioned, and that West Indies story as well. They've opted out a tour, a trio of players anyway, have opted out of a tour of England over safety fears. Uh, that is the, the Guardian. Uh, the Mail this morning, Bowes Park Strife, Dublin side admit breaching ban on training six times. So it wasn't just that one time that they uh, got photographed. Never admit that, lads. And Olympians fight ends in victory. Ireland's Olympians have received a tremendous boost with the news that health officials will grant exemptions from COVID-19 restrictions for the use of training facilities. And then close contact study gives Gaelic Games a huge boost. That's the news coming through from the um, uh, Stats Sports survey. And then they also have a story about Shane McGrath profiling the Director General who's leading by example in a crisis. So praise for Tom Ryan from Shane McGrath in the mail today. The back page of the Herald is Owen Gull, Dubs hero merchant, lockdown gives us a chance to recover, he says. Ross, no return for old guard at the FAI. Sports Minister Shane Ross has given his backing to the FAI board and says he won't allow the old guard to retain power at the association. And we'll do whatever it takes, says Klopp. Pool boss vows fans will have a celebration. And finally for me then, it is the Racing Post. Stars out at Newmarket, racing returns to flat headquarters and roosters starting to crow. The NRL returned with a bang last week, but the enforced break appears to have served some sides better than others. So the competition's first round of fixtures since March 22, fitness was a big issue. And in the Racing Post, they've got a preview of the next round. Um, we are going to take a, a quick break in a moment before we get to Gina Akpromoses. Uh, just to tell you as well that the OTB Sports app uh, is live right now. You can go onto the App Store, onto the Google Play Store, and you'll be able to uh, grab that right now. It is available, brand new, sparkly. Ger Gilroy, have you downloaded it? Have you been scrolling through it over the last couple of days? Yeah, it's been class. Just search OTB Sports on the app uh, in the App Store, and you'll you'll get it. Uh, really good response from people so far. Um, you can email us feedback at offtheball.com if you've got anything that you want to get off your chest. But to be honest, when you download it, you realize the amount of content that we create, and uh, there's something for everybody. You can pick your favorite sports, you can personalize your content, so you just get whatever it is you want. We'll have live scores when live, sco live sport returns. There's a, an events tab where you can get tickets. Uh, you can nab tickets first. We will be having some app exclusives as well. We're going to put up the uh, OTB Gold series, which has been broadcasting on OTB Sports Radio as its own podcast strand, and that'll be exclusive for app users. We also have a very, very big name interview coming your way, which we'll be making available first on uh, the OTB Sports app. So get on to the Play Store or get on to uh, the App Store and uh, search OTB Sports, and you can download that for your dedication and goodness. Okay. Hours and hours of free fun. Absolutely. Nothing better than that. It is 8.34 on this Thursday morning. Up next, we're going to be joined by two of Ireland's most exciting athletes, Gina Akpamoses and Joseph Ojiwumi, for a chat about their lives in lockdown and the silent racism that still exists in Irish sport. But first, on the football show last night, Miguel Delaney joined Joe to chat about a range of issues. You can listen back to the full football show and catch all of our podcasts right now over on the OTB Sports app. Just search for the OTB Sports in the App Store or Google Play Store and give it a download. Here's Miguel on why the Newcastle Saudi takeover has just hit a roadblock. Premier League and Newcastle find themselves in the middle of what is an economic cold war between uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, which is, of course, led to this the growth of this station, BLQ, which is basically, you know, the kind of crudest uh, pirate, pirate undermining of uh, the Qatari station, BNQ, or BN Sports, sorry. Um, the, you know, the, the Premier League of themselves have done 
they've exhausted every avenue trying to take action against this. Mm. You know, they've gone to the US government, the UK government, um, they've issued statements, they've tried to take action nine times in Saudi Arabia, but tellingly couldn't get a firm to represent them in that case. Uh, so I think that has appeased a lot of broadcasters who the Premier League do have a strong relationship with. Um, and it has, of course, led to this uh, WTO um, report on uh, BLQ, which has come out in two weeks. And I think it won't be until after that this issue will be decided, because obviously, if they, if, 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 as everyone expects, the WTO rules that the Saudi Arabian state is behind BLQ, it, it would put any Premier, any Premier League decision before then in a bit of a tricky position, because there's so much wrapped up in this. Because I mean, I, I was talking to someone involved this week for for peace on that, and if you look at what the Premier League is, it's it, it, beyond the football. The actual body of the Premier League is essentially it's been stripped down from Richard Scudamore's time to essentially become just purely a right-selling business. And that's why it's so successful, why it's made so much money. But that is all it is. And that's been built on really strong relationships with broadcasters all over the world and obviously kind of proven really strong in issues like protecting copyright, you know, shutting down streams, all the rest of it. And for the, the sanction of a deal to go through um, where a state has been behind this this pirate station basically mm. it would cause a lot of problems and, and uh, you know people just been talking about potential breaches of trust it would change relationships well not breaches of trust but it would change relationships and potentially as much as anything just maybe lessen the value of rights in future all right delighted to say that irish athletes gina akpa moses and joseph ojiwumi are with us now you're very welcome folks thanks a million for taking the call Hi. thanks for having us Gina, we might start with you because you've already been speaking to Arthur O'D for otbsports.com. It's a fantastic piece. It's worth checking out. But I might just start with what happened last week in Minneapolis with the video of George Floyd and how that went viral. I I'd just love to hear what your initial thoughts were upon seeing that video. Um, when I saw it on my timeline on Twitter, I did not watch the full video. I couldn't watch the full video. Like, I just saw probably like the first couple seconds of it and I was like okay this is I know how this is gonna end I don't want to watch the full video I don't like seeing that kind of stuff so I just kind of like skipped it and looked at the comments just to see what actually happened but um yeah it was disgusting to see because like it's not the first time and it hasn't been the last either even since he has died so it was quite frustrating and like it was just enraging people even more and more so mm. yeah I think that was an emotion shared by a lot of people that this is not the first time. It's yeah. possibly the most shocking incident that a lot of people will have seen recently. And I think that's probably the reason why this has exploded so much that while we all realised that this sort of thing has been happening forever, I don't think many people were left without being shocked by the specific content of the video. Yeah, definitely. What was your response then to, or what were you thinking when the protests started to develop and there was such an unbelievable reaction to this? Because I think that probably surprised people as well, just how everything exploded after this and there was such a, a show of solidarity thereafter. Yeah, I think it's just very, like, relieving that, like, it's like we're finally, not just America, but, like, the whole world is getting involved and it's not just they're about, because we know there's black people everywhere. It's not just America that they, that they resonate, like, they're all over the place. So I think it's good that, like, we're protesting in Dublin, protests in in London, in France, like in New Zealand, even in Japan and all them kind of places, like, it's like everyone is like signing up for us because it's not just that 
like we've been left in the dark for so long and people think that like you know because everyone's gotten used to how racism is and how people act towards black people is like you know what it's not that big of a deal but like to us it is because we've always had to be bottom barrel like it has never been fair for us to just live a normal and, and like an equal life like everyone else so the fact that everyone is kind of like joining in now it just makes it seem as if yeah like there's going to be change it's going to be a turning point in the way black people are seen in society and like we will get what we what we deserve so mm. because it is quite easy for us in Ireland especially to point fingers at the United States especially because it is such an outward culture of racism that they have in the United yeah. States of America it, it's actually far more difficult on a number of levels for us to be introspective here in Ireland. Do you think we've achieved that in Ireland and in, I know you're based in the UK, in Ireland and in the UK, to have actually spent a bit of time over the last week looking at ourselves and how we've also had huge failings in our society when it comes to race? Um, I would like to believe that, you know, people are now, now like recognising, you know, whether they've been like hiddenly racist or openly racist. I can, hopefully like they can realise now that how they can fix it or they can change their mindset and like see the world through our point of view and not just theirs because I think that's also been the issue like everyone is just not really like trying to put themselves in our shoes and hence like, they don't know how to really sympathize with us or like even like feel what we feel because they haven't they haven't even tried to, to think okay what would we like to be a black person just for the day or what would be like when slavery was still on because it's like everyone just neglects the fact that you know, the black person, average black person does find it harder to get a job, you know, like, you know, when you go shopping, you're, you're being watched because like, oh, are they going to steal, like the stereotypes, all that kind of stuff. So I would like to believe that people in Ireland now have, are like more aware of it and they will now act accordingly or, or do better to help other people that they see who are in need or who, who have been like subjected to um, um, racism. What have been your specific experiences of racism yeah. in Ireland? Um... I think it's just been little things like um, when I would have my natural hair out and they'd be like, oh, Dina, why is your hair so short? And they just start laughing. And like, I'm like, okay, okay, cool. And like, I've been told um, they were surprised that I could speak really well, good English. And I had, I had a Dundalk accent, like I didn't have an African accent. And I'm just thinking to myself, why would I have a, a strong African accent when I came here when I was two or uh, almost three years old? I was barely speaking. So how is that even going to work? And then obviously I've been called a nigger before when I was like quite young by some boy who didn't understand what he was saying, but he said it. So it's like, even the fact that he doesn't, he didn't understand what he was saying, but still knew it was offensive and still said it. That was a problem to me as well. So it's just been stuff like that. And online racism too, after I've competed and got medals and, you know, um, I had the flag on the wrong way around and people were like, why that's Ivory Coast? Why do we have her? She's not She's not an Irish person. Like her name doesn't sound Irish. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like you can keep going, but it's still not going to stop the fact that I still competed and I got medal for everyone. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, does does that obviously that has an impact? Like all all of those things combined must have an impact that wear you down over a period of time. How how do you not let it have an impact? Um, I'm just saying there's, there's just bigger stuff to deal with. <laughs> I think I don't, honestly like comments people will always talk and I'm like I personally don't have time to dwell on something someone's ignorance if you want to learn you will go and do your research and you will learn if you don't want to learn I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to force you to understand where I'm coming from I'm not going to force you to be empathetic and or sympathetic to me as a black person so it's just a case of 
it's not down to me, it's down to them at the end of the day. So that's why I just get over it quite easily. Joseph, okay. I, sorry, Jerry, uh, we might just get your view on this, uh, Joseph. What, what's been your view of racism in Ireland? Have you experienced it firsthand? Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Like Gene already said, the one where you're walking into a shop and automatically the security guard comes and starts following you around the shop. I just experienced that just last, what, last Saturday with some of my friends. And uh, one of them got really annoyed at it and started, started like challenging the security guard, asking like, why are you following us? They didn't have an answer, just kept doing it. Um, I, I love it. There's a lot of microaggressions that happens. I love, you know, Irish people don't see. Um, you know, like the, the whole hair thing, they want to touch your hair. Um, they ask you, why do you like, do you like watermelon? I mean, like, just because just because my color of skin looks like this is me, I'm going to automatically like everything that everybody else Everybody else is black, black, you know what I mean? Um, some, like, blatant ones is, like, I, when I played football a lot, like, you know, you get really heated when you play football and um, you annoy somebody, you tackle somebody the wrong way, and the first thing they'll come at you and say is they call you a black bastard, call you the N-word, really blatant to your face, or even take it off the field, have a regular argument with somebody. The first thing they turn to is to comment about your race. That's the first thing they turn to. They have nothing else to come at you uh, with and like that just shows hate and it shows a lot of disrespect and you know they know they know it hurts so that's why they'll, they'll use it you know uh yeah there's there's, there's quite a, there's quite a lot like you're gonna have to you have to keep me on this call for a while if you want to hear everything like it is remarkable that that was just last saturday especially in the, in the wake of everything that's happened and like I guess the ability to stand up to that to, to that security guard that you mentioned is something, but like it it, it just it, I think what happens is that a, a lot of people in this country say, well, oh, I haven't seen outward racism, therefore it doesn't exist, which is a completely wrong way of, of looking at it. And and I just hope that this period of time allows us to have conversations like this, Joseph, and actually realise that that is not true, because as you say, you have an unbelievably lengthy list of, of things you could mention, of cases you can mention where when people say, oh, racism doesn't exist in this country, it's just patently incorrect. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the list is endless. This is endless. And a lot of people say, like you said, if they don't see it, like it doesn't exist. And um, I mean, like they, they're, I think they're part of the problem. But I love the fact that every, so many people get involved. Like there's so many, like you can see all the protests everywhere. It's all over social media. So if you're, if you still can't like have a little inkling of how we feel about this, then you're that's that's ridiculous, man. You're just not paying attention. You're being ignorant. Like, but I love the fact that it's getting out there, and just the fact that it's getting out there, and people are hearing about it, people are seeing it. Like, it just it might not make an initial change, but at least it will it will spark the the thought in your mind when you do see it happening. I think that's just a, a good enough W is a good enough win for us now. If everyone if everyone now understands that these things happen everywhere in the smallest of ways, I think it makes everybody it makes it a little bit better. It makes it a little mm. bit easier to 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 live and a bit it, it makes them a bit more conscious if they wanna go out and carry out a racist act like. What would you like to happen in the future, Joseph, apart from people thinking that this exists and, and I guess feeling seen, apart from Apart from your neighbors and uh, your friends seeing that you go through these experiences, what else would you like to happen? Uh, 
like it's a stop, of course. Like <laughs> I like it to stop. I like people to to actually be able to empathize and stand up stand up for me. Like there might be cases where I just can't stand up for myself. I don't know what sort of situation that may be, but there might be a situation where I can't stand up for myself and someone in a better position can help me out uh, and challenge, you know, challenge, you know, their their own race and talk and, and just say, yeah, that's not wrong. That's not right. Come on, like fix up, do better. I like it to stop, of course. Like nobody wants to be experiencing racism. Come on, like it just it's a way to, to oppress people and like we don't be feeling like that. So the ultimate goal of hopefully in this lifetime is for it to stop completely. The, the big thing that people have been talking about in America is institutional racism. And um, yeah. in many ways, it's it's a catch-all term that kind of allows everybody to go, well, it's not actually me who's doing this. It's it's the institutions, and I'm just a part of that institution. So we need to change the institution. But obviously, individuals need to change, and individuals do make up um, institutions. You know, it's not a building. It's the, it's the people who run an organization or the people who run a society or the, the people who run a school or a university or... Like it, 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 it is something that collectively we need to talk about and to hear, I think, the individual examples because it, that's the sort of stuff that actually brings it home to us. You being followed by a security guard is the type of thing that everybody would understand is a fairly mm-hmm. horrific uh, level of subconscious racism that you're being subjected to. And it's not even the overt stuff. Like it's the, as you say, the microaggressions that happen on a daily basis that I think that is almost the hardest thing for people to put themselves in the experience of, but equally is the easiest thing for people to understand. How would I feel if that was happening to me? Well, pretty pissed off. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like you asked, there's a, there's a great video that's been going around of uh, this activist, American activist lady, and um, she asked the, the crowd, um, would they like to be treated the way that black society are treated? And, in the states and she asked them if you want to be treated like the, the blacks are stand up she repeated it nobody stood up so i think that speaks volumes and if you were to ask i don't know if you were to ask why are people here they like to be treated the way black people are treated here uh i'd be interested to see what they say about that i think so um gina was talking about uh you know how difficult it is to um get jobs and how you know, we've seen before that um, the part of town that you live in has an impact on your ability to get jobs and to access medical care and to, to do all that kind of stuff that, like, again, is taken for granted by so many people. Um, in, in terms of targeting institutional racism, have you seen anything around the world? Are you seeing anything in your own social media circles where you are hopeful that it is becoming something that the country is waking up to and becoming conscious about? Sorry, could you repeat that really? Yeah, are, are, are you seeing stuff that suggests that we are, as a country in Ireland, becoming more aware of the unconscious racism, the institutional racism, and the sort of stuff that actually we just need to think about? No, I don't I guess see, are you hopeful? Uh, I don't really yeah. see that happening at all. I don't see anybody doing that right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't haven't seen anything either, to be honest. Like... I think, I just think people are scared. I think people are scared to stand up for what they know is, what they know is, um, what's like, right. You got it. I don't know 
tell this, I don't understand why racism is seen as a topic that really gets under people's skin and is proper controversial. Like, people are losing jobs for speaking out about how they feel about this. And I'll never understand it because you blatantly know it's wrong. So why are people getting, like, crucified for agreeing that it's wrong? So I think, like, there's still a lot of work that everyone needs to do. Like, everyone has a lot of work to do. I don't think it's going to just blow over, you know, in the next, just because it's been made aware now, people are going to stop. People are still going to keep doing it. And I think it's just that, like, Black people in Ireland, we have a smaller community in Ireland, that's the thing. So it's just for us to, like, branch out more and, like, try to get ourselves in a position of power. And, like, until we see more Black people in positions of power, then really and truly, I don't really know if Ireland or any place is going to really change the way it should change. So... Gina, when you say that people are getting crucified for agreeing that it's wrong, what in particular are you referring to here? Because I think obviously the most uh, prominent example over the last few years has been the Colin Kaepernick situation, who, I mean, obviously has essentially lost his livelihood for speaking out against racism. Um, I'm just seeing just people's small stories online. Like I'm seeing people, like family members, kicking them out of the house because they don't agree, because they say racism is wrong. I saw a girl the other day say that she actually lost her job because of, she contacted her like her her company and said you know what I'm just gonna like she posted something and obviously they must have seen it online and then they messaged her and she lost her job and also even police officers a guy who wanted to take the knee and send up for racism he also has to leave his job because they were not letting him go and protest it's just a lot of things like that like you should not be getting in trouble for having for speaking out do you get it because you can speak out about other things like LGBT and all that kind of stuff, you know, and you don't need your job. But when it comes to speaking about racism, it's a big hope. It's a problem. Like it's something that it's like it's really like offending you, and you shouldn't really be offended if you know it's wrong. It's wrong. Like there shouldn't. There, there's no two ways about it. Like you honestly, like if you read about Black history and how they suffered and how Black people have suffered even till this day, like for you to now be offended by it, I don't understand that that thought process. It doesn't make any sense to me. So. Have you noticed a difference, Gina, in racism from Ireland to the UK? Um, the only difference is that the UK they're more open with their racism, but in Ireland, I is they're, they're they're more hidden behind. Like they like to they like to put on a, a little fate a front that you know they are not racist. They're really nice people, and obviously some people are nice people. And I have not I'm not saying that everyone's bad, but some people are nice people. But those nice people can also people that will talk bad behind you and like they will just throw you under the bus the minute race gets into it into like something bad happens to you or they'll blame you or something like that so I think or when they get angry they'll go straight to the race car so it's a case of like people do like to hide it but in the UK they will just say whatever they want to say and it's just what it is like people try to also hide it in the UK but they're more open with it so yeah I was listening to Greg Popovich this week saying that not being racist is no longer enough in terms of where we are in the world, that we actually all need to make an effort to be anti-racist. How can that effort be made, Gina, in your view? Um, how can that effort be made? How to be anti-racist? Lord, I, I mean, I think people just educating themselves. That's probably the first step. Like, educate yourself. If you really want to... If you don't understand why black people are so upset and so tired, read on the history and imagine that's, imagine that's you or your brother, your sister, your mother, 
like your dad, a cousin, you know, anybody that like you that you hold dearly to your heart. Imagine if that was them or if that was you. Like just picture how painful it would be. Like and like it's like the psychological, emotional and just like the physical like effect it has on you as a person. But it's traumatic. Do you understand? So like if you can really like delve into the history and and educate yourself in the right way then of course like that's that's the first step to anti-racism that's the first step to like not trying to like blame black people or stereotyping them because it's like black people were li- like we're, we were like shoved into a hole and we're, t- and we're being like we want to come out of it but we're being told no we're just being kicked back into the hole like we don't put ourselves there white people brought us and dug up that hole and shoved us into the hole expecting us to be happy in a, in a dark hole that like no like no one want to be in so it's a case of like trying to just educate yourself helping people in the best way possible and just knowing like just checking your moral code and knowing what is right for human just basic human rights in general and trying to fix it on that and like just there can progress could i add to that <clears throat> could i add to that uh, i think you could also just like ask or talk to someone that's black just talk to them ask them what can they do because a lot of people don't know what they can do they don't know what to say they don't want to say the wrong thing um but like, I feel like a way to educate yourself is just talk to those people who actually go through it. So, you see, like, you, you must know someone who's black. I don't know if you, you must know somebody. So just find somebody, ask them the questions that, you know, bother you, how you can make a difference, how you can be anti-racist, and trust they will help you. Because if they see someone trying to help, I think that's a good step. If they see someone trying to understand, that's a great step. So I say just reach out. Well said. Uh, listen, Gina and Joseph, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks, Millie, for taking the call this morning. No, no thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, it is 8.57 on this Thursday morning, and I'm delighted to say that former Kilkenny Hurler and current Offaly boss Mick Fenley will join us next on OTBAM this morning to chat about a big fundraiser that's happening with the Offaly hurling squad this weekend. Now, Kelly Harrington joined Joe last night for a feature interview about life in lockdown, the Olympics, and training. You can get the full piece through the OTB Sports app right now. And Kelly is saying her diet is much more balanced than people believe. Does the drop from 64 kgs down to 60 make any great difference? Um, no, I've come down from 69. So I won my first elite at 69, then I come down to 64. I was always light for 64, but I'm actually heavier now, now at 60 than I was at 64. Like, right. So I, like, I don't like making weight. Nobody likes making weight because like 60 is... It's it's a natural way for me, I suppose, because 64 isn't really, because you're meeting people coming down. But uh, it just means I have to tidy up and I can't really eat chocolate and this and stuff when it's getting closer to to weighing in. And there, I that's I love chocolate and biscuits. Like that's my little when I come home from training or work, it'll be feet up chocolate and biscuits and. People think that, like, oh, you're a real clean diet and you have... No, it's a balanced diet. I eat the exact same as everybody else, you know, like, it's balanced. Yeah. So do you have chocolate in the house? Because if, if, if we buy it, it gets eaten. I mean, if we buy a box of Pringles and it gets opened, there's, no day, there's, there's no day two. So yeah, no. do you have it in the house or how do you approach all that? Because if it's in the house for a lot of people, they're going for it. Yeah, no, uh, how, like, as soon as I buy, like, if I go to Dunn, so I'm going to Dunn today, I'll probably buy a large uh, fruit and Cadbury's fruit and nut large bar and a Malteser, a large Malteser's bar and a packet of biscuits. 
once one of those bars gets opened, it's gone in the day. Like there's no like there is no stopping, and they're the big bars. Like there's no stopping until it's all gone. And then yeah. I'll sit the next day, and I'll be like, no, no, I won't have that. And I'll wait until the weekend. Now I'll be good. I'll wait. And then I'll be like, I'll have one bit, and then it's gone again. And then the next day, one biscuit leads to the whole packet. I can't, like, I just, I don't do things in half measures, do you know what I mean? It's, it's all or nothing, like, <laughs> infantainous. There's a lot of people nodding along in agreement. Yeah, I'm certainly one of those people. Uh, good on Kelly Harrington. Make, making us feel a little bit more normal on this uh, Thursday morning. Right, it is 8.59. You're watching OTBAM. Delighted to say we've got Offaly Hurling boss Michael Fenley with us. Good morning to you, Michael. How are things? Good now, lads. Good on. So this Saturday night, half past seven, 6th of June, is this the most nervous you've ever been at any point in your life? This uh, Forget the hurling, forget the management. Uh, Martina Turner, uh, Michael Fenley, is what I'm seeing here for the Offaly Senior Hurlers variety show. Yeah, it's a, a bit different, all right, Owen. A bit, a bit unusual. Maybe that's what happens in, in retirement from <laughs> hurling and that. You know, I'm looking at carving out a new career, but... I don't think it'll last too long, being honest about it. Uh, yeah, so we have a, a lovely variety show lined up at, at 7.30, as you said, and to be going out on social media platforms. Uh, we've got 14 acts lined up that, uh, in terms of uh, players, and we have the Camogie girls coming in with an act, we have the Mertwenties coming in with an act, and we have like Michael Burney and Joe Troy there too, local media men as well, who also are putting in an act. So we have um, yeah, a lot going on, a really interesting uh, variety show uh, which should get a good few laughs I think We have a teaser of your act here uh, so I think we can have a look at it now This is That is very much Michael Verney, not uh, Michael Fenley there. I was actually like, uh, Michael's after letting the hair grow out during lockdown until he actually realised that it was just uh, a wig. So that, that is not uh, you. you what, what is your act going to be? Mine is Martina Turner, but I wish it, I wish it was that one, to be honest. I wish it was uh, Father Ted. It would have been a safer option to go for. But uh, whatever that kind of came about nearly was. It was only about three weeks ago we decided maybe to, to look into doing a... Uh, a lip sync more than anything and the whole thing evolved from there and I was probably trying to egg on a couple of players to, to do to do a couple of acts and we have three under 20s that are on our, our team uh, Ross Ravenhill Kieran Burke and Brian Dignan and I said to the boys look if you do if you do um, uh, all the single ladies I said look I'll do Tina Turner and um, so and, and I didn't think they'd do it to be honest uh, and that's, that's the truth of it because it's a tricky one and obviously you have to dress up in a leotard and whatnot. But uh, the boys went ahead anyway, and they, they sent me on a couple of clips of their practice runs. So I started planning my Tina Turner thing. But I heard uh, subsequently then that Brian obviously is a uh, son of, of Michael Dignan, our chairperson. And, and Michael was telling me, Brian was asking me who Tina Turner was there lately. So I had to fill in with Michael on the, <laughs> the bits and pieces on it as well. But, uh, but it should be a, a brilliant night. And as I said, a lot of players are putting themselves out there with with uh, uh, different acts, uh, some obviously are dressing up as, as females and doing acts in, in that side of things, um, and obviously there's lip sync and there's sketches. So there's a, a really good variety. And um, look, it's all going to two local charities. It's going to uh, Down Syndrome Offaly and going to Jigsaw Offaly, and they're two kind of charities that we're quite passionate about. 
the, the fundraising has been going well, but you know we're, we're going into the last two or three days now where we really need a good bump again in terms of money coming in, and hopefully we'll get that. Well, if your appetite hasn't already been wet, this is Michael Fenley as Martina Turner. Tonight, Will, I'm going to be... Martina Turner. Like the, the outfit is obviously off to a T. <laughs> <laughs> the which? The outfit. <laughs> oh, the outfit, yeah. I, I struggled to get uh, something like, like that she was wearing in terms of uh, my, my family were saying, get a, get a different dress with uh, kind of strings coming out. So I was like, will you stop? I haven't got time for this. And uh, that, that, that done me now, to be honest. Uh, I didn't bother with, with makeup or, or fake hand or anything now, so I kept this fairly natural, uh, which was important. Uh, and, and also... On top of our, our fundraiser Saturday night on, we also have a solar run uh, on the Sunday, which is just as important, to be honest. And again, we're, we're, we're using both charities in terms of the fundraising, and we're running from um, Kilcarmock to Tullamore. In, Kil- in Kilcarmock, we have our Down Syndrome Offaly branch, and in Tullamore, we have uh, the Jigsaw branch. So that's about 20 kilometres, and the boys are doing a, a relay. So we have about maybe 15 to 16 players doing the Variety Act, and we've got 15 odd players then doing the solar one. So it's a weekend of fundraising for two you know, charities that we're, we're looking to raise money for. Great stuff. Uh, and as you mentioned there. Oh, sorry, go on, Ger. You're going to very extreme lengths to take away any sense of importance about your own retirement. You slip that in there and then you dress up with Tina Turner so that the only thing people are going to talk about is Tina Turner and this fundraiser. And in the meantime, you've hung up the boots. Hung up the boots, yeah. So. So yeah, just probably three or four weeks ago, Jared, I probably decided to, to hang him up. And um, obviously, it's not an easy decision because you you start at five years of age or six years of age down in in, in the local hurling field, and and hurling is obviously a, is a massive part of my life, and my club is a massive part of my life. Um, and look, it doesn't it doesn't feel like the end to be honest, but in one sense, you know, I probably won't ever hurl again again. Like that that probably scares me a bit. Um, and you know maybe at some stage I might go back to Stretcher Junior or something, but I don't think probably that's even practical because look the reason I, I gave up was because uh, of injuries, and I don't want to be going back to Stretcher Junior and end up with a cruciate injury or something. So I don't think that would work either. Um, I, I bought a bike there during the week as well there, so kind of a bit of impulsive buying to, to do a bit of cycling, maybe that and trying to keep fit and, and hopefully maybe get a bit of time to play a bit of golf. But uh, but it is a bit surreal and you know it, it was a difficult decision and you know there is a bittersweet with it you know because. You know, the last 24 months have been savage, winning two Club All-Irelands, you know, capturing both of them too. Like, it was, it was a dream come true, to be honest, you know. But uh, it still doesn't feel like that I'm finishing on a massive height, to be honest. You know, I feel like I'd, I'd love to go again. and uh, But just, as I said, the body just can't go there at the moment. Was it a, a, an accumulation of all the injuries? Or you, you've had back injuries over the years. I always felt like that was the most debilitating when the rest of your body is totally fine, but the back won't actually do what you need it to. Was there something specific at this point that you're like, okay, I've had enough? Yeah, I think an accumulation is right, um, to be fair. But I, I think uh, just last year, I, I ended up with a with a, an operation, and a procedure, probably more than anything, just micro-fracturing on the knee. And, and again, I wasn't expected that cause. I went in for a scope to clean out the, cart- the cartilage and damage that had been done to my knee. But unfortunately, there was so much damage done, I had to get microfracturing, which is uh, drilling holes into the femur to try and generate a bit of scar tissue to protect the remaining cartilage. Uh, again, there's no guarantees of, of that working or anything like that. And obviously, you're not going to be growing back any cartilage. But that took uh, like that was six or seven weeks on crutches alone. And I've never in my life been on crutches for that length. And that was, that was very challenging and very, very difficult. And then I had to go back to, throughout the whole rehab process. And again, going back, trying to, to jog, going back to run, 
and that was very difficult. That was like seven months, and at 34, at 34 last year, like you know, that makes life so much harder. A new baby as well, um, a lot going on. Obviously, the Offaly uh, role came into play as well. So, so there was just a lot going on. Uh, but I think that injury in particular really opened opened up my eyes. Uh, and even I wasn't overly sure of coming back last September. Uh, being truthful and it was just I had to come back and get and get back healthy and, and just thankfully it all fell in line in terms of okay I came back and I started feeling a bit better with, with my body and uh, started getting through training sessions and through games but there's other uh, soft tissue and muscle injuries that are causing me, me grief as well between my groin and my hip flexor and my calf so there's it's, it's constantly ongoing I kind of had a weird sense that maybe lockdown might help somebody in your situation because the body just rests and recuperates for a little period of time, but actually, I guess that's not really the case. Has it? Has it been? No, no, not, not whatsoever. I, I, I need to be in the gym, and I was in the gym in, in, in February, March, just, just tipping away in terms of trying to keep me, me muscle and me joints strong and keeping the mobility there as much as possible. Um, and I was doing a bit of running even with the Offaly players. I, I try and jump in for a couple of runs during their training sessions just to keep myself ticking over. Um, and so I'll probably hanging on to a, a, a tiny string there that I might come back this year. But then, as well as when COVID hit like that everything stopped and I was still going on with my own bit of running and that but I was having problems with my back as I was doing the running no physio access uh, you know so just it became so much more challenging and again I do need to be in a gym uh, keep my body strong and obviously that hasn't been uh, the case either like I'm, I probably won't have gyms back on, until maybe August so it would just I'd have to go through maybe six months of rehab being honest about it to try and get back to training and at that there's no guarantee of me actually even coming back Is there a little period of mourning now for the end of not being able to play matches? Uh, not, not not this moment, no. For me, I think it's always been, um, and even throughout my injuries, I never hit home until I, until I actually went to a match. When I go to a match and I'm standing on the sideline or, sideline or, or in the crowd, that's when it hits home. And that's when, you know, kind of emotion pours through. You're thinking, I, I got to get back. I got to get out there. You know, this is what I'm missing. And uh, so at the moment, obviously, we're, we're in a surreal time with no games, nothing happening. So, uh, so no morning, none whatsoever. But it's just yeah, that that probably um, that feeling in your gut, really. I suppose when matches do come back, that's when I probably w- really will miss it. And especially, obviously, watching the boys play. And again, Colin obviously still playing at the club. I have a load of cousins that are playing with the club. A load of friends there, and not being in those in those circles is probably going to be difficult as well. How have you been managing the role of being offly manager outside of? persuading lads to get involved in the variety show. What have you been doing over the past couple of months to try and keep the connections up? Yeah, so I think I think probably similar to most teams, like the first probably five, six weeks, we were probably using uh, social media and, and I suppose technology to, to keep connected, like the WhatsApp, like the photos when you're going out doing your bit of individual running. Um, if you're getting a bit of uh, your home gym program done as well, it's good to put up a picture just to show like that you are doing it. So just keeping kind of connectivity really within the group. We did a couple of different challenges per week as well. We did a juggling challenge, maybe see who can juggle for seven seconds. Um, you know, it's, it's probably quite easy for someone who can juggle, but someone who hasn't done it before, it was quite challenging. And probably half the team couldn't do it. Well, couldn't do it initially, but then after two weeks of, of practicing, uh, we, we got there. So that was quite fun and, and entertaining. Uh, we had a, a nutrition challenge as well in terms of uh, bake-offs as well. So, so we had a lot of that going on. And I think for me, at six weeks, we had enough done. And I think... If we go any longer, I think players would have maybe start getting a bit sick of it. Uh, would would have been more draining for them. You know, they're going through a difficult time with with work, with family, uh, a lot going on um, in around that time. So I was very conscious of getting the balance right. And we just we just literally stopped for three weeks because we did, we had no kind of WhatsApp messages, we had no pictures, 
I think players needed to switch off. And again, the fear I'd have at Intercounty is it, the thing becomes very robotic. You're expect mm. you, you want control as well. You want to know what they're doing constantly. But you know, for me, it's, it's kind of like a mini off season. They're nearly during that period where look, let's leave them alone. We want them coming back whenever we do come back with an appetite and fresh mentally and physically. Um, and at the moment, the lads are doing a small bit, but obviously this variety show actually is after taking a, a lot of time. The solo ones are taking a lot of time and, and that's become the focus, to be honest, over the last week or two, but, which is good. It, yeah. it's, it's normal. It's human. Um, and and we we're, we're still have that connectivity there and, and we're doing something together. And I think that's what's really important. And we're doing something not for ourselves, it's, it's for... Uh, the people who are vulnerable and people who need that, that support. Would you like to be managing a team going into inter-county action this year, perhaps September, October direction? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Like, I'd love to get back at some stage mm. on, and, and I'm conscious of, you know, like when, when, it's, when it's right, it's right. You know, I'm, I'm not pushing any time frame around that. Like, you know, the GA and, and the, the committee that's looking after the COVID side of things like they'll let us know in, in due time. Um, I would like you know if they decide this intercounties come back in three or four weeks. Like obviously, I, I don't, like that would never happen anyway. But like that would give me fear to be honest, because you can't go from one extreme to another. And I think that for me, like if it does happen, the club scene starting off is the, is the great is a great roadmap because they can get training under their belts. They can start building building themselves gradually uh, and start playing matches. And hopefully, then the intercounty will kick in maybe later in the year. Like that's how I would love to, to foresee it happening. Um, and I know there's there's some rumours going around that that's potentially the way it will happen, and I'm hoping it actually does happen that way. Yeah, it's looking like it could be a situation where you might have an unbelievable championship where it could be full knockout or something like that. Like I'm not sure in, in your position with Offaly if if that's something that you would you would welcome at this point or how it would view would it would attain to it. And then you kind of like throw in the fact that it's going to be played in empty stadiums. Obviously, at this point, has that come into your mind at all that there was a possibility there earlier in the year that we might not have seen championship being played whatsoever during this calendar year? Yeah, definitely. Um, like we're very much in the unknown uh, during March and April, in particular, with, with cases rising, um, you know, quite fast every week. Like so, I suppose you know, look, sport was really on, on the what, what was the last thing that you were concerned about, uh, to be honest about. So, uh, so now I think like there is definitely um, better vibes. There's a better feeling. Numbers are coming down, and 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 yeah, definitely. Uh, Whatever the, the structure is, come September, October, November, whenever, whenever that does come back, like you know, it is the same for everyone else, and I'm happy with that. Uh, to be honest, like once we get back playing, is, is the key thing. Um, and like obviously we're in the Christie Ring at the moment. There isn't as many teams in the Christie Ring compared to the Lee mm-hmm. McCarthy, so we, we wouldn't have as many games. So I think that would be easier to manage. Um, and if it's a knockout, knockout, um, you know, it, it wouldn't bother me in, in the slightest. Yeah, you could probably get the Christie Ring played off over a couple of weeks in comparison to a full championship. Uh, l- listen, Michael, it's been great chatting to you. Very best of luck on Saturday night. I hope it's a roaring success. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Fingers crossed it will be now. No doubt it will be, to be honest. It'll, be, it'll create a lot of laughs anyway. That's the main thing. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Yeah. And make sure to, to get on and donate. It is at the Offaly Hurling Variety Show this Saturday night. There's Michael Fennelly, the hurling manager, on the line. Uh, we should say as well that there's been uh, rumours overnight that we're about to see a return to play roadmap published by the GEA. Uh, we understand that that's been denied this morning, uh, according to OTB Sports sources. Uh, they're saying this morning that reports around dates of an intercounty return 
uh, are off the wall and that they aren't at that stage yet. We'll have the latest story for you on the OTB Sports app. So plenty to develop there over the next couple of days, to say the least. Right, quarter past nine on this Thursday morning on OTB AM. Plenty more to come on the show this morning. The latest episode of Keith Wood's State of the Union is up next with special guests Johnny Murphy and Steve Rooney, where we're focusing on schools and domestic rugby. The OTB Podcast Network. Right, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of Keith Wood's State of the Union. Our guests this week are Stephen Rooney and Johnny Murphy. Um, we're here to talk essentially about the state of the club and amateur and schools game and how that interacts with the professional game. So we're well covered in that regard. Um, Keith, I think everybody's going to be familiar with, uh, with Johnny's playing career. His coaching career has begun to take off in the last number of years. But Stephen, maybe you might talk to us a little bit about what your role is with um, regards to club rugby in Ireland and, and how you got involved. Uh, yeah, so, well, I, I was a, a player at Lansdowne and then after retiring, had nothing better to do. So I went off and, and became director of rugby in, in Lansdowne. So I've been doing that for over 10 years at this stage. Um, and I suppose just of recently, myself and a few other guys representing sort of Leinster clubs have been... Uh, in talks with the IRFU together with our Munster counterparts and our Ulster and, and Connacht counterparts, just discussing the All-Ireland League and discussing, you know, how it can evolve and maybe, you know, change for the better. He underplays himself a little bit there, uh, Ger. He was a particularly uncomfortable guy to play against, I would have said, back in the day a long time ago. But... Um, uh, but also part of, of, of what this conversation was is that when the game went professional 25 years ago, the clubs pretty much got left behind, you know, and uh, it was very interesting. We spoke last week with, with Philip Brown and he gave a great insight into, into the security or lack therein of the game. And, um, but one of the big fallouts from the game going professional was that the IRFU took, which I still believe is the right decision to go with the provinces because they're the only ones with the, the, the critical mass to be able to make it into a professional game. Um, and yet I would still have and come from the old uh, idea where schools and club are essential for your improvement and your chance to become a rugby player. And um, we're still young in a professional sport, but 25 years of the clubs being kind of pushed a little bit out of the way all the time. Um, and I know that that uh, that Stevens is, is at the forefront to try and, and make certain that the club game is brought back up to a level of where it is properly substantial and the proper um, stepping stone for, for players that may not get in the academy system, but may kind of be a couple of years later, may get into be playing at a higher level again. But also for the fact that the ethos of the game is built with the schools and with the clubs. So um, that's the nature of this conversation too. So Stephen, if I was to ask, what do you want? What's the answer to that? Like in, in an ideal world, what's the outcome for you as a, as a representative of the clubs here in this conversation? Um, I, look, I, I, you know, I, I think really the clubs are possibly just looking for you know, a little more respect more so than, than anything in, in that All-Ireland League Rugby at the minute at Division 1 level is, is a very good product it, it's, it's, it's actually some, some, some a really good standard of play um, you've got a lot of uh, young aspiring professionals in, in the league and that and you, know, you, you go but you, you go from week to week and 
this is where sometimes the integrity of the league gets called into question because you're sort of at the mercy of the professional outfits as to who who might get released to you from week to week and that and you know and, and they have their own agendas to follow and everyone accepts that but you know, I, I think from a from a sponsorship point of view from a club point of view having a team which is loaded with four or five pros one week and then the, the, the same club goes out and plays another team in the following week you know that doesn't doesn't really do the reputation of the league any, any good so you know I, I think the league is there. The league has evolved, um, but in itself, it, it's a very like it's a very entertaining product. The, the problem with Irish rugby is, you know, there's only so many rugby games that a rugby fan can watch in one weekend, type of thing. And you know, they they watch their their Pro 14 or their Heineken Champions Cup or or whatever it may be. And you know, sometimes the the club game gets forgotten about that. So you know, the club needs to make the club game needs to make itself a bit more relevant. It needs to work harder, I think, to to sort of get you know more uh, more viewers more 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 people coming in the gates of the club you know helping that because it it is an important part of Irish rugby and you know if, if club rugby were to fall away I think it would be very detrimental to all levels of of rugby in the country and and so it just needs a bit more love if, if you like Stephen there's there's an issue here and one of them it's almost a philosophical question as to whether we want the game to just be a professional game and look, I, I was fortunate to, to play in the amateur time and play in the professional time, but also that the, the, the nature of, of rugby, it isn't and shouldn't be about 150 professional players in, in Ireland. It needs to be about what it gives you as a child in school, what it gives you as a sense of community, a sense of camaraderie. So we have a lot of, a lot of kids playing, a lot of kids stopping playing at 18 or 19 partly because there isn't a maybe a pathway. You don't have to be a pathway to play an international or a professional. You don't need to be a professional. But we played the game because we absolutely bloody loved it. You know, there was something fantastic about the game to play. And and it was very exciting for us. And we have friends, and we'll have friends for life because of it, both from school. Uh, we had a, a 30 years reunion of my school team. Um, and we met up just before Christmas, and it was it was just it was fantastic. And I remember them from school, but they're not the memories you have. The memories you have are actually playing rugby and going on the trips with them, and, and getting to know them, and getting to understand what team and self belief and discipline and, and all those attributes that you get from rugby are. Um, but if if the game below professional um, gets sidetracked completely, I think we miss a huge trick in what makes the game great. So we accept the game has to be professional, but there's an awful lot more than just professional rugby. Yeah, I, I just 100% agree with you. You know, that there's, you know, as I say, the friendships, like clubs, clubs form, rugby clubs form a big part of their communities. You know, the the, the club network that is there is, is hugely important. Guys, you know, like getting on with life or just supporting guys in, in, in hard times and that, that's all, you know, hugely important. You know, before, you know, everyone plays plays rugby. Like what I what I hate to see is that rug, rugby sort of club rugby become, you know gets more and more insignificant and ultimately fades away. And then we have some sort of American football type scenario where nobody plays rugby after school, other than the professionals, and that. And you know that that would be, you know, as I say, I think that would be hugely detrimental to 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 what what's going on. I, I like at the minute. You, you have some very good academy systems in Ireland. Leinster's it probably has, you know, like is the shining light. 
But there are a lot of players like that have come through club rugby that you know, have come through a difficult route where they didn't, for whatever reason or not, they don't get picked up by the Leinster Academy. And they, they, you know, they have a different route. And club rugby can provide that route. And you know, I think if you listen to the guys like uh, Noel McNamara from the Leinster Academy, and he speaks very highly of the value of club rugby in terms of preparing his under-20 squad and, and, and you know, giving them, so hardening these guys up and, and giving them the experience at, at a higher, faster level that you know, they haven't had previous to that. I think that's that that's really important in the sense that of I know from experience in the school game that there are already a certain amount that don't go forward and play, and under twenties uh, is a fantastic brand of rugby and um, is really really enjoyable because you're going into you're out in the in the wider world for your first time and there's a freedom associated to that and it can be really really enjoyable, but. I think the main fall off for guys is because some of them might already know that, well, look, I'm probably not going to be professional, but they don't feel that there's probably an attractive enough level for them to play at because of how kind of teenagers and young adults are. They, they don't see the club game as an attractive level or essentially an attractive product to play in because there's not a huge amount of publicity attached to it, and for kids that are, are are in their senior cup, you know, in their senior cup squad panel of 28, 30, however each school do it, they're a part of this um, two, you know, some two three month journey that they're in the papers. They're you know it's been spoken about on social media, but they know that well this is it because this is going to be you know the the peak where if the club game was a really attractive product and it was seen more and it was out there more i think they'd have more people continue to play because they're oh well okay well that's fine i might not be a pro but look geez i can play this fantastic level and i can play week in week out against i can pit myself against the guys who are going to be professional because they're playing in it when they're not picked for their provinces and i think that's that's something that there's a trick being missed there because ultimately we're losing people playing rugby and whatever level you play. And I say this to all my six years when they leave, I'd love to look back in 10 years time and everyone in this room still be playing whatever level. It doesn't matter because rugby gives you values, but it also gives you opportunities at every level, whether you play for in Lansdowne, the killer seas or whatever, you know, that those teams that might be the, fifths or sixths in the club but you're having a beer on a Friday night and you're looking for a job after college at 24, 25 someone might give you a job it creates opportunities not just in rugby but outside of rugby and I think that's that's really really important and it's to keep giving them that opportunity that it's it is an attractive ultimately it's an attractive product for them to keep playing Um, I know it's a different time and it was a different time uh, but Gary Owen were the route for me to play for Ireland. So I, I played for Ireland before I played a competitive match for Monster. And it was on the back of performances that we had in the All-Ireland League because it was, you know, pretty much at its height or, or um, a lot of the 90s was the height of the AIL. Um, but the reason I loved club rugby is I was a front row forward. So that idea of learning your craft of what to do, how to scrummage, 
it, it's impossible to learn that without playing matches. And for me, that's one of the issues that we have with the academy system. I'd still like to see the players play more rugby. I mean, obviously, you need to get them bigger, stronger, and have to be able to take what's going to come down the track when they're going to play at a higher level. But actually, the idea of playing and knowing that you play against a gnarly guy who's 32 or 3 years of age, uh, who knows every trick in the book, and you're 18 or 19, and you have to learn them. You know, and if you don't, you know, you, it's, it's the best education that you can actually have. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those young players, like they, I mean, they have their these development programs and they're, they're great development programs, all mapped out by, by their academy coaches and everything. But that really needs to be supported by meaningful rugby game time. You know, ultimately, you know, it's, it's great developing a guy, but, you know, there's no substitute for experience. And, and that, that is what the All-Ireland League can give you. You, you know, you've got these young lads going up against men who, as you say, have been around the block and, and you know, I, as I say, know every trick in the book and that. So it, it's it's a really part, important part of the development. And, you know, like, it it does work. Like, you've got guy, Ronan Keller, who's now, you know, uh, you know, uh, pulling up trees and, and whatever. A little over a year ago, he was playing All-Ireland League rugby. So, you know, so, you know, particularly, I think, particularly for front row forwards as well, it, it, it's, it's, it makes a huge amount of sense for these guys to be sort of, you know, train, training or, or learn, learning their, their craft, if you like. And I, think, I don't know. Sorry, uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about the, the Keller situation. How did that come about and why does that not happen more? Why does everybody not get a set amount of game time in the IAL? Um, look, the, the, ultimately, I, you know, this is for the, 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 the pro guys to really, you know, explain to you. But, like, ultimately, they, you know, their priority, Leo Cullen's priority as a Leinster coach is his next Pro 14 game or preparing for the next Heineken Champions Cup again. The, the All-Ireland League, as much as he, like he is quite supportive of it, but it, it's, not, it's not what he gets paid to do. Okay, so like he has to prepare his team. And you know, Leinster, in particular, would have a huge amount of international call-ups. So what, you know, if you look at the amount of players that Leinster have given debuts to, which is all brilliant, and that is, you know, is fantastic. They 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 bring through the young players quite quickly, and 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 it's really good to see. What really would annoy a lot of the clubs and things is where you've got a young lad who's maybe been twenty fourth man for the last three Pro fourteen games because you know they they need the cover there. That's that's what they need. And as a result, that guy hasn't put on a you know, hasn't been on a rugby pitch in 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 four or five weeks. Um, you know, which is, as I say, you know, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that you want to avoid. And, and it, you know, I think part of, the, a part of the discussions that I've been involved with, um, you know, have been, you know, they've been very positive. Uh, Callie McEntee from the IRFU has, has been, you know, basically trying to, to come at it a, a, a little bit differently from his predecessors and, and, and really, you know, is is a big follower of the club game and a big believer in the club game and and, and he's he's trying to to get everyone to kind of you know get a bit of compromise going um so that both the club game and the professional game can benefit from a lot of these younger players getting more more game time uh, in the AAL and you know and, and the AAL will will improve and will be a better product as a result it'll be more attractive for people to come and watch and that so the, the, you know, there's been some very positive discussions there, but you know, sorry, Keith. You... Yeah, no, there's 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 a structural component to, to this, Stephen. So, um, if it's considered that the IRFU 
um, needs the club game, they then need to tidy up the structure of it because it went to a stage at one about 10 or 12 years ago where it was the All-Ireland League all over the whole country for virtually every club that had played rugby. That's not good enough. That's just spreading that senior capacity across the line, whereas you do need to have it some way heightened up into, uh, into the higher levels to try and have a standard that actually fits where you get more player into those, into those ones. And then you have proper um, uh, provincial club competitions underneath that. So there needs to be something consistent that works. It doesn't have to be 10 months of the year. It just needs to be something that's very consistent. But it also fills a hole that doesn't happen. So when you stream a huge amount of kids uh, into, um, into academies, everybody else is left behind. You do need to make certain that they have a route through as well. And, um, and guys mature at different stages and we know it and Johnny you know that uh, an awful lot I think we need to to talk a little bit about the the, the schools game as well but um, because uh, we can see within the Leinster system we are just churning out players of quality um, uh, huge numbers every year and actually they're beginning to spread all over the world now at the present moment in time um, what is Leinster doing so right or what are the Leinster schools doing so right at the present moment in time? Well I think in, in that regard there's a lot of um, there's a huge amount of work that goes on behind the scenes from a Leinster perspective particularly in this area from 16s up so um, they have summer programs but they have programs that run all year long that are different to when when I was playing and that they now have a real focus on the youths in Leinster that um, you know uh, Trevor Hogan is is ahead of 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 that he's the talent uh, talent identification officer um, Phil Lawler is the head of the domestic game in Leinster and they have now an elite youth program that stay together and train as a squad all year, uh, all season long they're not um, they're not in rugby playing schools. Uh, they also have another squad underneath that that also uh, play games throughout the season. They don't train as much as the elite guys. Um, I think they're called the YSU. Um, they so, but they're being graded each area, each area, and how you get into the the YSP. Sorry, it's YSP. How you get into the YSP is you're being looked at from under sixteen. So when you come out of third year you're being looked at, but every area, uh, so the North Midlands, um, East Midlands, all those areas in Leinster, I think there's seven, are looking at between, I think about 80 or 90 kids in that age group. They then get filtered, they go into um, a program where there's about 200 kids from under 16 and 17s and then that's developed when they're 18 and 19 into these elite squads but there's still 70 or 80 youth players being looked at consistently over the whole way but when you have you know 100 kids 150 200 kids in each area being looked at under 16 they're nearly looking at between the Shane Horgan competitions they're nearly consistently looking at I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred kids through you know each each year, and they then develop forward. But how they're developed then is that the YSP will then play 
all the top school side. And I think this year, um, I think the only team to beat the YSP, I think, was St. Michael's. And I could be correct in that. But they beat, you know, they played Black Rock, uh, they played Michael's. They were all really, really tight games. So they're playing the elite schools level, where historically, when I was playing, say my school team, Newbridge College, would have played the Utes, the Leinster Utes, and it would have been a close game. But that was the overall Leinster Utes. So it's developed so much more. And they have, you know, the YDOs are going into um, new development officers. They're now going into uh, developing schools. They're going into clubs. Every club in um, in Leinster will have a CCRO, a community club officer, rugby development officer, that will also go into three or four schools, even into primary schools, secondary schools. So they're looking at absolutely every area. And I've had conversations with a few people and they said that their job isn't done until they have maybe a professional rugby player from Tala or a professional rugby player from inner city Dublin um, or a non-playing rugby area. So that's ultimately their goal. Now each province is different in how they approach it and each province should be different because one shoe doesn't doesn't fit all so it's um you know like Munster I think should be more um youth based and have uh, you know around the clubs because there's only a few kind of uh you know there's not the, the same amount but you know maybe doing um a county rugby team similar enough to splitting them out. Leinster are doing it, splitting them into areas by each county and having a, um, you know, a, a county rugby officer that starts looking at, at kids and developing the programs through the CCR program. But again, it's very difficult to do because people are now trying to copy what Leinster are doing. But that doesn't fit everywhere because they don't have the same population, don't have the same playing numbers. But, but from that, Johnny, what, what percentage of those guys are getting through to getting Leinster contracts, senior contracts? Oh, there's only a small percentage. The percentage is still the same. So this is something that's going to pay dividends um, that Leinster would hope in five, six, ten years' time, that this yeah. is a pathway that's built up within it. And I know Munster yeah. are doing something similar, albeit on a much smaller, uh, a much smaller scale with it. Um, but for me, I wanted to go back onto the school's component part of it. So... Um, the senior schools in Leinster have very professional uh, coaching staffs. There's a lot of money invested within that side of it. But the amount of players that are coming out of that system, are, there's huge numbers every year. Yeah, well, like our, like our I'm in Newbridge College, our, our, our program, some people won't like me saying it, but our players are essentially professional rugby players for nine months of the year built around school time. So they'll have three weight sessions. They'll be in for weights in the morning at seven o'clock uh, on a Monday morning. Um, there could be a review potentially during the day or before, or we have um, remote reviewing uh, capacity and huddle. Um, so I can tag and tag a game and send clips to individual players. Uh, we'll train on a Monday afternoon. Um, Monday morning, then uh, Tuesday morning, they'll have weights again. We could have another review during the day. Uh, we'll be back on the pitch Wednesday. They'll be off um, uh, Thursday. Then we'll play. Uh, we'll wait again. More um, rugby team run play for, uh, play Saturday, um, and that's essentially it's built around like we've a physio that's um, he's not full time, but uh, he's a past pupil. But they can call at any stage. 
we have a strength and conditioner, a full-time strength and conditioner that looks after the whole school. Um, and he does hockey as well. Um, we have, I suppose I'd be classed as a full-time uh, rug, um, uh, employee from, from a rugby perspective. Um, and then, you know, I have a forwards coach, a defence coach. Um, you know, the juniors the same. The juniors have an attack uh, defence coach. Um, and each each year has individual coaches, head coaches, assistants through the whole way. Like we have our uh, current second years, there's four co- five coaches, uh, two exter- three external out of the five, uh, two externals in first year with three, uh, three or four members of of staff. Uh, Ty is all external, uh, two external coaches at Ty. The SET is there's only one member of staff and the others are all external uh, coaches. So that's the level and the, you're essentially running a professional program within a school and there's a pathway for six years. Within that system, are many of those volunteer? Are they all? Oh no, they are. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a, you, you, uh, all, are, all are being paid. If you're a staff member, then there's obviously a small uh, bursary on top that you can you can get but um there's a pro rata for e- each session uh, and then there'd be one or two that would be above that that would be essentially full-time it's i mean it's an extraordinary system it's it... and like we're not we're, we're we're not like we have to like we don't have a full-time director of rugby uh there's four or five of those in in other in in other in other schools we are moving to that but it's going to take a a a a length of you know a period of time um but yeah like we're we're not uh, we are not where we should be and we've done reviews during covid to show that and we're we're still not where we need to be if we want to repeat what we did this year and continue that way so yeah that's we're, we'd be classed as probably a development professional, uh, a development program in the sense that we're trying to develop to reach where Michael's Blackrock, Gonzaga to a certain extent, uh, Mary's have a full time DOR, um, and you know to to really try and push to push where they are, you know. And does the school finance the whole thing independently, or do Leinster or the IRFU pay anything along the way? Oh, it's, uh, it's independent. Uh, there's some stuff fundraisers in terms of past pupils and uh, uh, that would be um, involved, but uh, it's part of um, uh, the school that, that that pay for that. It's handy for Leinster to have uh, such an academy system, handing them players at seventeen and eighteen. Yeah, they, they they do help. Like you can get as much help as you want, but it's not. You know, they they don't like. So I'd have we've run testing days where Lencer have come in and and seen where we are, where we're at. They have our data compared to other uh, schools that they were allowed into. Um, they'll drop in in terms of your medical protocols. You know, anything that you want from a Lencer perspective is there, but they don't have any direct funding. It's it's support. Um, and I and I actually think that that's something that could be really helpful in the pro in the in the uh, club game as well is that provincial support being sent uh, being uh, being released to the clubs as well. But again, it's manpower to an extent. Stephen, right? You don't have any age. You don't have teams kind of in the age group for players who would be playing in schools. Is that is that true about most rugby clubs? 
I that it, it, traditionally that was always the case with, with with Leinster clubs. Now it's it's changed a fair bit uh, in the last while. You've seen a lot of Dublin clubs are, are sort of trying to expand their youth sections, but they're they're. If you're in an SCT squad and you, you you may not be playing first rugby, you could well never never pull on a, a, a jersey for the first team in school. You're, but you're you're named in that SCT squad, then you are you're you're not allowed to play with your club. You're not allowed to play club rugby for that that period of time, which can be a frustration for 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 a lot of guys, and it's certainly a frustration for you know some of the clubs where you you've done a job in sort of bringing these guys up from under eights through to you know probably under 13s or so and then they go missing for three or four years and probably that connection that they have with the club is you know i wouldn't say broken but it, it, it certainly weakened considerably um so you know, there's less when these guys come out of school then they feel you know less part of the club you know so that, like that like that's just you know that's an off an offshoot of, of this kind of very sophisticated school system that that you know Leinster clubs have. There is a, a school's youth uh, designated uh, time frame, but that's generally in TY where you can play a, a school's youth side. But as Rue said, for instance, I have I had uh, two T three TYs in my um, squad in my training squad. Now I think one was a starter, um, but the other two probably accumulated a small amount of game time and only in, in friendlies, but would have been with us for three months of the year. He wasn't allowed to play for his club. Um, regardless of whether I wanted him to or not, he's just not allowed. And if he did play, and then there'd be repercussions from a, obviously rules and regulations standpoint. But in my, my opinion, he should be allowed to play. I think it should be they could would be able to. Now it's an administration issue too. To be fair, um, that you know if he wasn't involved in my twenty three, that he was allowed to play uh, schools youth Saturday or so one and Saturday or Sunday. He should be allowed to play on a on a Sunday with his club if he wanted to. But it there is a, a huge amount of administration because every rugby playing school has to send in those every week. Then you know. And there is that sort of situation goes on in Munster. It is actually one of the, I would say, fallout elements from uh, the game going professional as well. There's a bit of a change in terms of different elements with that. I love the association with the club, although I didn't start with Gary Owen until I left St. Munchens and they then became my club going, going forward afterwards. Um, but maybe there could be uh, a sort of end of season competition or a sevens competition or something that keeps the link. So the idea of building up a guy from five or six years of age to going to school at, at 12 or 13 and then not seeing him for four or five years, there's something inherently wrong in that. But more so, more so than that, actually, the big issue is we should never say no to a kid playing rugby. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. If, a, if, a, if a kid is in a squad and he can't, get, he can't get into the team, but he's a good player. And some of these teams have got 25 good players, 30 good players. So he could be very, very good. There has to be a route. There has to be not just one rule that covers everything. You should never say no to a kid going to play rugby at any stage. And uh, at times we've had issues with that in Munster in, in, in a big way. So guys are trying to leave clubs because they don't have a team at under 15 or under 16 and they'd like to go and play there. 
but they often don't get allowed to go and play. You can't move clubs you know, until you're 18, you can go on loan. So there's issues with all of that side of it as well. So I, I do think that, again, a lot of that comes from uh, leadership. A lot of that comes from the IRFU to, uh, directing what it actually wants to be, to be, um, to be done. And a lot of cases, um, especially for the club game, it's been left on its own. It hasn't become something that's been central. And in terms of the schools, if the schools keep churning out the players at the amount that they're doing, you know, and the schools and the schools' parents are paying for it, they don't really need to worry about that either. They don't want to kind of uh, mess with too much there because an awful lot of quality is coming through the school system. I think the other byproduct of, of, of the school system, and, and sorry, it's a good problem to have, is, but you, you have a lot of a lot of kids coming out of school who are very good rugby players, you know, particularly, you know, we spoke about the, the Leinster clubs and that, or Leinster schools. Um, and, the, but as Johnny says, the reality is only a very small percentage of these guys will make it through into, into the academies uh, and hopefully on to professional careers after that. Now, you know, there's probably, you know, quite a, a significant percentage that ultimately could be good enough to play, you know, to, to play higher at, at a higher level. But for whatever reason, they they don't get the the letter from the Leinster Academy getting them in. So all of a sudden, sudden their their hopes are dashed, and they just turn away from rugby completely. And that's where the clubs can really sort of step in and help these guys and and, and get them back, you know, back on a route. And you know, like certainly, you know, Lansdowne amongst lots of other clubs have seen you know guys take a more indirect route towards professional rugby because I mean I mean ultimately. I would imagine the IRFU want as big a base of players to pick their national teams from as they can. So if you've got young, you know, young guys with potential giving up because you know they, they you know, the the Leinster kind of door has been shut on them or or whatever, then you know it, it, that that's that's not going to serve the game very well going forward either. So you know it, it's you know I I think it, it's an issue. It's another reason why. You know, the club rugby needs to be there and, and you know, to help these guys, you know, push Ru, 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 would you see a national under-21s competition, club competition, would you see that as being a stepping stone either the, uh, to reignite your love of the game and maybe uh, copper fasten in association with the club or it might give you the, you know, the extra little bit of rugby that you could play after school, something to aim for? Well, you've got the Fraser McMullen Cup, which is under twenties. Um, now you have to, you know, you have to qualify for that. You have to kind of come through your, your provincial league and qualify through it. I, I don't Ulster don't participate in it. Uh, Connacht are, are part of the the Leinster under twenty setup. So you know, they, they, to be honest, they, they it, it's usually dominated by probably three or four teams in in, in Leinster. Um, you know, I, I think the reality is that the All Ireland League, the the age profile in the All Ireland League is very young, so it, it's come down hugely since you or I ever, uh, you know, were, were playing. Um, so you know, a lot of the guys that are playing are sort of, you know, anywhere between nineteen and twenty three, twenty four. The guys, you know, the 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 thirty year olds playing are are less and less, and I think you know that's probably, yeah, you know, I, I don't think that's peculiar to Ireland alone. I think that's just the nature of the sport. And natures of economies and things like that, but you know, I, I, you know, I, I think the, 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 to separate the under twenty ones from the AAL, you know, possibly you know, it, it, there's, there's merit in having the competition, but I, I, you know, I think you 
if you if you focus this and channel these young players through into the All Ireland League itself, you, you'll be achieving that. But to have for the guys that don't quite quite make it there, I think the under twenties competitions are brilliant because it it takes guys a while to develop and to find their feet. You know, in school, the school system is you know very professional. Everything's laid laid out to the players on a plate like that. You know, they they you know they don't even really have to think about it. Almost, it, it's all there. Whereas school at clubs level, you know, all of a sudden you become an adult. You, you've got to do a bit of growing up. You, you've got to take on a bit more responsibility yourself. Sometimes it takes guys, you know, a, a, you know, a bit of time to kind of to manage that. And I think that is something that the actual clubs themselves can manage. Is that you know have an emphasis on under twenties and make it clear that their uh, protocols are that if you're not picked for the AIL side, then you play with your peer group for two years, which is under 20s, and it affords you to grow a bit more, playing a really good standard. Like, I, I think the Premier 20s in Leinster, certainly, um, you know, they would have the capability of competing probably at Division 2A, um, in terms of AIL standard, I think the physicality would probably get the better of them over a, a, a period of se- a period of the season. But I do think it's important for a guy who still has a bit of development to go that knows that if he's not good enough to play AIL, well, that's fine. On a Sunday, I'm going to be playing with my my mates who are um, you know the same age, similar enough size, and I'm having really good crack. So it's a way of keeping that level uh that age group of guys coming forward where if he can go into j1s or even j2s he's playing against adults um and that can get a small bit fed up with that because he's essentially losing contact with his mates so i think that is something that the club themselves uh, could take responsibility for that it's you know they're, they're you know their rules for the want of a better word or if you're not picked in the AL squad well away you go and you play 20s play with your mates for the weekend yeah, yeah. so sorry Premier 20s is, is obviously the the under 20s Who does every club have an, an under 20 team and they would play in the Premier 20 league is that, is uh, that no, you, no you kind of qualify and then it's ranked but yeah most teams will, will have and will try their very best and then it's it's ranked like any AIL competition or any Leinster competition so Premier Div 1 Div 2 and so on Okay, but your your junior teams would would tend to pick up players who don't make who want to play senior rugby who don't make yeah. the senior team and they would tend to go to the junior team as opposed to the under twenties because you're kind of you've outgrown it in some ways. Yeah, and then you know junior clubs uh, also try and have uh, like the local you know Newbridge they have a have an under twenties Kildare in our local area have under twenties they play in a in a in a, a cup competition but also have the potential to qualify into the main twenties league. Um, so it is there is like there is opportunity for 18, 19, 20 year olds to play together for two years um, at their level. Um, it's just to yeah. make sure that the clubs are are allowing them to do that and not necessarily playing against J1s or J2s who are who are adults. Uh, Steve, again, pardon my ignorance here. Um, are there players who are semi-professional playing in the IAL? And how many semi-professionals would there be? How do, how do they get financed? So the, the league itself is an amateur league. Okay, so the only the only guys that that are officially getting paid are you know are the guys who are with the the different academies or who are 
you know, they, they, they're development players or, or you know, young, young, young guys in, 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 in the provinces who, for one reason or another, aren't getting games or maybe coming back from injury. So then you, you've, got, you've, you've also then got a mix of kind of guys who've hung up their boots professionally and are back and maybe they've kind of realigned with their club and they're, they're trying to kickstart their career. Yeah, so, for example, Mark Flanagan uh, joined us last season having played in, in the UK and then having played with Leinster and Munster in, in Ireland and that, and he's come back and, and he, he, he's an engineer now. So, you know, there's, so there's a, you know, it's a good mix uh, of, of, of talent, but like the, the, like the league itself, the, 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 the RFU are very strict on it. it it's, 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 you know, strictly speaking, is an amateur league. You know, whether, whether you know, everybody adheres to that or not, that they, that, that's, a, that's a whole other debate. But, um, okay. You know. so one, one, of the, one of the parts on that that um, uh, I, I would have always said was a joy as, as a young guy. So it's a long time since, since I, I played All-Ireland League. And I started when I was 19 playing All-Ireland League. And, um, but if you looked around the room, you had bankers, you had builders, you had accountants, you had students, you had engineers, you had people in every walk of life. And... Um, uh, it was one of the great things he would say about Limerick that it was everybody played. It was a game for everybody. It wasn't elitist at all. And what was what was a joy within that changing room was that you had different perspectives. I mean, it was just it was about independent thought. Everybody viewed it differently. So one of the issues when you go into um, I'm going to say uh, a, a Leinster school that is at that level of organisation that this is how things are done, which is which is brilliant for enhancing an athlete and bringing an athlete to a higher level, is that it's, if you bypass the club side, you bypass different opinions. You bypass different ways of doing things. You, uh, this is a regimented view of doing it. Um, we do want independent thinkers in it as much as possible. And actually, that's where a lot of kids fall by the wayside, leaving, leaving school. Everything isn't laid on for them. Um, and some don't like that, and actually, but some thrive in it, and some suddenly uh, have an awful lot more to offer when they come out at the end of it. It's something that the clubs actually do give, do give a lot. Um, just but like we're, we're getting close towards the end of this. Uh, how has the lockdown, how has that affected both the school and the club? If we, if we go club first, uh, Stephen, how, like how, how much pressure are you under? It, I think it's put a huge financial strain on, on on clubs all around the country. So it like you know essentially since March, you know we, when all rugby activities ceased and whatever, uh, all your all your revenue and your your streams of revenue, whether they be you know match gates or whether they be bar revenue or whether they be events that you run in the clubhouse and whatever, that's all just completely gone. Um, and you know, like it, it's a rugby club. It's 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 not it's not a business that you know puts money aside, whatever. So you know, they're, they're you know pr clubs probably have a, a little bit of short term finance that they can they can they can you know they can get them through. And you've seen a lot of I think there's a lot of GoFundMe pages up with different various different clubs reaching out to their members and their diaspora or whatever to, to try and, and and get them through what, what's what's a difficult financial time. Um, but you know, I, I think to be honest, I think. The whole COVID thing brings a lot of opportunity because, like you know, amateur club rugby is is, is obviously sort of suffering, but professional rugby has come to a standstill as well. There's a huge question mark over what games can be played and what competitions can be run. So you know, 
is the Celtic Cup going to happen this year? If the Celtic Cup doesn't happen, I think it's a great opportunity for the clubs and, and, and the professional setups to maybe forge a kind of closer and stronger relationship. And these guys who need rugby, these young players who would norm, normally play in the Celtic Cup, and that, that's you know, at least eight games of their season, you know, that would provide them with some meaningful sort of proper rugby um, you know, in order to hone their skills and, and, and help prep them for, for whatever lies ahead of them. So you know, the, the, you know, I, I always try and look at the opportunities and things, and I think that there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I say all it needs, and it, like, it'll, like, that's something you can do without any added expense. You know, I, I don't know what it costs to field a Celtic Cup set of team or, or, or a match or whatever, but I know that the infrastructure with the All-Ireland is already there, so that the cost is barely zero, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I think that's, for me, you know, that I, I, if, 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 you know, if that was, if, if that comes to, 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 to pan out or whatever, that, that some of these pro competitions are, as I say, getting cancelled or, or whatever, and, and pro rugby players need rugby, then the clubs can step in and provide that. And and you know, I think as Johnny spoke about, maybe there's an opportunity then for the, you know, the the professional coaches to come in and liaise with the clubs, and you know, show well this is you know this is how we'd approach doing this or or, or whatever, and, and just bring their knowledge to bear and, and and pass it down to to the clubs. I mean, that there are a lot. The coaches have a lot of, or the clubs have a lot of good coaches as it is, but everyone can learn more. Everyone can learn how, how you know how to do things better. So sorry, I'm I'm, I'm rattling on a bit, but you know that, that's uh, you know it, it's it's a difficult time though. Like I mean, and like and everyone like nobody's sort of avoiding like everybody's health is absolutely paramount. So like clubs won't be going back until it's absolutely safe for everybody to do that. You know, but we want to make sure that there are clubs to go back to. You know, and and you know like. I know the, the the professional game has taken huge hits on that, but yeah, there, I, I would imagine there'd be some clubs around the country that simply just won't survive this, or you know, if if they do, it'll be because there's been a huge amount of work from the members and that. So you know, it's 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 difficult. Uh, from a school perspective, um, it's it remains to be seen um, based on. Uh, obviously, uh, fees and and probably how uh, how the whole thing is going to affect the whole the economy as a whole. Really, um, I suppose one of the added extras and and a lot of um, uh, why parents choose uh, private schools is the extracurricular activities that 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 can be afforded to uh, for, for their kids and and the the varying options that they have. So. Um, you know, I think it's important that that it does go forward. Uh, for us at the moment, we are uh, planning. I've been in constant contact with next year's group. Um, they're on a break now, and and they'll start again, um, probably remotely on their own um, in in July, and we'll plan from them. But we're in a bit of a holding pattern. But as is for us, I think, um, I think overall the private school. Um, uh, the private school uh, sector is probably just going to have to wait and see how how it is really affected in terms of uh, school in terms of numbers um, and I suppose they the principals that have been through the previous recession um, a couple of years ago probably have an idea of of where um, where things you know have to get probably have to get managed and and that but from from our our, our side. Um, 
it's we're, we're trying to continue on as normal and and trying to keep the lads active i think following on from what rue said in terms of the, the 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 club stuff um it's really important that the club is full, ultimately it's a community asset and i think that it is um that it is supported and i think clubs if they have walkways and they have uh different things you know the 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 opportunity to open the facilities up um in the for the you know for the local people can also bring in new members um, obviously all done in a, in a really safe way and under government guidelines, but the opportunity for um, the clubs of all sports to show off what facilities they have and that to show that they really are there for the community. And without the community, they won't be there anymore. So I think um, it is really important that, that when they can and when it's safe, that every club tries to show off the facilities that they have and, and try and um, get the community out and active. And I think that's one of the big things, the amount of activity that has happened and people are way more active. Hopefully mm. this will, and I suppose the weather plays a huge amount in that, but hopefully this will be a kind of a catalyst for people that haven't tried sports to try them, to pick them up, um, all sports. And, and I think that hopefully that can be a positive out of that, that our society as a whole is going to be more active and uh, you know you see Australia how how active they are, but also you know their volunteerism doesn't drop, and people are engaged at clubs and and they drive things forward in their community. So hopefully we can follow suit there. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. Um, Keith, I'll give the last word to you on this. How hopeful are you that the right blend of relationship between the uh, elite amateur game, the amateur game, and the professional game can be found? Um, I don't think it's been found in the last 10 years, actually. I think some parts of it have, have gone well. I think we are getting a lot of players through different systems, but not through all systems. Um, I think if you were to look at, at rugby traditionally, it was built on clubs, um, schools, and uh, the international team. And so for that, you could put in the professional game for it is now, but it still needs to be clubs, schools and professional rugby and at the present moment in time the clubs are not getting enough, enough love um, there isn't enough structure for them to be able to uh, build on top of it I think it's a very difficult time at the present moment in time I, I, I do take Stephen's uh, point of view that if certain things are changed um, because of competitions that can't be played can the clubs fill that hole and if they fill that hole why wouldn't they be filling that all the time going forward so I think there is a route for it but it requires people to get around the table to make that route work and happen um, in terms of the schools uh, what Leinster are doing is truly extraordinary um, uh, I didn't want to ask on air exactly what you think your, your budget would be for your school programme because I think that would be a bit harsh but I'd love to have that discussion again because I know that in lots of schools in St Munchens, my own school for example which is a not, not a fee-paying school, they don't pay their coaches at all, actually. So there isn't a professional program that's set in there. They still do pretty well. Um, um, they have a couple of junior cups over the last few years, and, uh, and they're, they're very keen on not paying them. They actually love the idea of this being a volunteer and of a teacher-driven system. Um, but that's a particular system as well, and who's to say that's right, wrong, or indifferent, or that Johnny's is. But um, there does need to be more done 
to try and help all the schools in the different areas that are not done on a fee-paying model to be able to promote uh, higher standards within those schools and support would have to come from the RFU for that. So um, we had Philip Brown on last week and Philip Brown is talking, saying, well, without the professional game, we don't have anything to do with the amateur game. We're struggling very, very heavily. So I think it's a difficult number of years ahead of us. But the only way ever, ever through any of that level of, of difficulty is talk, is conversation. Get around the table and see what can actually happen. And um, you're going to lose something. I mean, they say the art of compromise is that absolutely nobody is happy. Um, the clubs will lose something, the schools might lose something, the IRFU might lose something. None of them might be happy with it, but it may be a workable system going forward. Right. On that note, our guest this week, Stephen Rooney and Johnny Murphy, another Keith Woods State of the Union is in the books. Hopefully it has provoked some conversation anyway. We'll see you next week. Thanks a million. The OTB Podcast Network.